Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of FW Presents, the anthology show of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. This episode is part of the JL May 2020 celebration focusing on Countdown to Infinite Crisis. Now, in this episode, we're going to be looking at the miniseries from 2005 entitled Day of Vengeance. And for this episode, I'm one of your hosts. I'm the Irredeemable Shag, by the way. And I am joined by a very special guest, my buddy, Mr. Sean Ross from the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network. Welcome, Sean. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. I'm good. Thanks for having me and thanks for sharing a mini I had forgotten how good it is. So this is great. I'm, I'm psyched. You're basically just the fish on the hook because what I do <laughs> when I need a, a, someone to podcast with me, I put an image out on Twitter or Facebook and I'm like, man, I love this. Who else loves this? And then I watch all the responses. I'm like, oh, okay, that guy, sucker. And just zone <laughs> in and go, you're going to do a show with me now. So thank you for falling for my trap. Yeah, I think I was the only one. This was, this was not a highly responded to image from what I remember. <laughs> I remember being like, oh, I love that man. And it was just crickets. Just, yeah, just virtual yeah. crickets. So I'm, I'm good. I'm glad it's you and me against the world on this one. I, I feel like I'm your own personal Eclipso, is what I feel like. In, 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 <laughs> do, you, do you have a black diamond? Because I want a black diamond. <laughs> I, well, I, I have the comic that had me the black too. diamond. I've got me so too. many of those. And it's always the comic that's in front of it that's got the dent in the back. You know? yep. yep. All right, folks, we are doing part of JL May 2020. And what this is, is every year, a bunch of podcasters foolishly get together and pick some topic related to the Justice League and do a whole big podcast cross. Again, this year is Countdown to Infinite Crisis, not specifically Infinite Crisis itself, but all the stuff that went on leading up to it, as or as Michael Bailey likes to call it, the event before the event. <laughs> so we want you to go out on the social medias, use the hashtag PoundJLMay2020. Tell us what you think about this episode, what you think about Day of Vengeance, what you think about all the other crossovers you know that were out there. There was what? Ran Thanagar War, Villains United, OMAC Project, and Countdown to Infinite Crisis, and just all the excitement that was building. We want to know your thoughts about how excited you were or weren't excited leading up to Infinite Crisis. Before we get much further though, we probably should take a second to thank our sponsors. Now folks, this episode of FW Presents is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. So Sean, what pick did you bring today? So I really wanted to focus in on some of the big characters that we're going to be talking about. And, and one of the primary characters in this miniseries is Gene Loring. Oh, goodness. Now, yeah, that is a loaded name, man. <laughs> now, she is Eclipso in this miniseries. And that, I know, I can feel some of your eyes rolling. But just stop, because this miniseries is a delight. But her downfall didn't start here. It started way back at the beginning. Oh, yeah. So my pick from InStock Trades was Justice League of America, The Wedding of the Atom and Gene Loring Hardcover. <laughs> Uh, exactly. Yeah, it couldn't just be. It had to be the hardcover because you really need the full scope of this story. Right. So it's written by Jerry Conway, Steve Englehart, drawn by Dick Dillon, who mm-hmm. is, I mean, on the Mount Rushmore of JLA artists. Mm-hmm. And it's a 1970s tale, and Dr. Light makes his dramatic return. So does Snapper Carr. I'm going to change my vocal tone with that. But he's turned <laughs> traitor to the League. Ultra, the hero of Earth Prime, joins the League in their battle with the Injustice Gang. And the Phantom Stranger assists the team against a family of ancient gods. Oh, and by the way, so this is the trade journey. Dress. They call it the wedding of Adam and Jean Loring, but they pack it with a bunch of other stuff. And they say, oh, by the way, the Adam and Jean Loring get married, but will the power of her mind destroy the earth? And the answer is no, but it will destroy their marriage and it will emasculate him more than even being the Adam already did. And so it's a it's a fun that's book. solicitation? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right in there. <laughs> <laughs> and it collects Justice League of America 149 to 158 and Super Team Family 13 to 14. So normally 
this would be $69.99, but it in stock trades, it is only $40.59. So if during this time when you are in your house and with your spouse and your significant other or whatever, whoever that may be, and maybe the thought has crossed your mind of, oh, this is really intense and I don't know if this is going well, read this hardcover and you can get a real snapshot <laughs> of what a real bad marriage looks like. And you will be like, oh, we're the best couple ever. <laughs> At least I didn't marry Gene Loring is something I've said to myself twice during quarantine. So, so I'm pretty happy with that. I have often said that after quarantine, the, the two booming businesses are going to be pediatric doctors and divorce lawyers. Those are the two booming oh, yeah. businesses after quarantine. So uh, ironically, I just read Super Teen Family 13 and 14 because oh, it's seriously? also collected in the Secret Society of Supervillains trade paperbacks. And nice. yeah, Gene Loring is crazy in there and yeah. she almost destroys the earth with her mind. They're not wrong. So uh, <laughs> I do love, yeah, that they, they played on that and the return of Dr. Light in this trade paperback. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness, DC. So my pick, also trying to hone in on some of the characters in this trade paperback, I picked Crisis on Infinite Earth's Companion Deluxe Volume 3. These are these great, giant tomes, 536 pages, where they basically collect all of the crossover issues of Crisis. Not Crisis itself, but you get all the Amethyst issues, or the Wonder Woman issues, or Swamp Thing. You know, it may just be, oh, look, Red Skies, or it might be a legitimate Crisis-involved story. And it also includes Blue Devil number 17 and 18. And unless I'm mistaken, I don't think there's any Blue Devil collected anywhere except for these right here, because it never got collected in anything, even though they tried to make a showcase out of it. It never happened. So these may be some of the only Blue Devil books that have ever been collected. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, Companion, Deluxe Volume 3. It's uh, Besides all those, it's also got Legion of Superheroes and Superman and DC Comics Presents and Justice League America, Omega Men. I'm running out of air. There's so much in there. <laughs> anyway, uh, cover arts by George Perez, of course. Normally retails for $75. Remember, it's 536 pages, though, full color. You get it for 42% pay, uh, percent off, and it's right now only $43.50, and it's a hell of a great deal. And it's so much chocolatey 1985 goodness. So it's so well worth it. And those Blue Devil issues are amazing. They really are. And, and actually, Swamp Thing 46 is the single greatest Crisis crossover issue. Oh, really? Uh, oh, it, it is my absolute favorite. It's all of them on the Monitor's satellite. Mm-hmm. And it's a scene we've seen play out in Crisis 4 and 5. We've seen it play out in other crossover issues. Alan Moore does more with that issue than any writer I've seen. It's, it's John Constantine on the Monitor satellite. So it's just brilliant. Yeah. I've never finished Alan Moore's run. I've started it several times and I've just, for whatever reason, I've never gotten to the end of it. So, oh, now I'm going to have to seek that out. That sounds great. Awesome. Yeah. Well, folks, for these and all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, this episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support because running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a whole bunch of online hosting and other fees. And for the past several years, uh, we've absorbed those costs, but it's grown exponentially as we host more products. So uh, we asked people to step up with the Patreon and you guys have been absolutely fantastic and supportive and we appreciate it. And if you uh, enjoy shows like this, the best way to support us is by visiting our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash FW podcast and consider supporting the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And at certain sponsorship levels, you actually get recognized on your show of your choice. For example, folks like David Ace Gutierrez and Gord Tolton, um, thank you very much, guys. We appreciate your support. And uh, visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash FW podcast. Now, we are going to take a quick podcast promo break. You're going to hear something all about JLMA. And when we come back, we're going to tackle Day of Vengeance. Or as in Sean's life, he just calls that the day Greg Arusha finished reading Secret Wars 2. Oh, oh poor Greg. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I hope he's home. Why does it sound like I'm using a phone in the UK? 
I told you never to call me again. Yeah, I know. And modern science has yet to create a device to measure how much I don't care. Look, I'm getting the trailer for this year's JL May together, and I assumed I had to make you a part of it since you're always in everybody's trailer or something. <laughs> well, look at you leading this year's JL May. Somebody's wearing his big boy pants. So, what's the theme? I sent you an email like a month ago. Like I even pay attention to anything you send me. Countdown to Infinite Crisis. Infinite Crisis? No, Countdown to Infinite Crisis. I'm not following. Shocking. The theme this year, I'm, I'm going to, like I'm talking to a child. The theme this year is Countdown to Infinite Crisis. I thought it was a fascinating time period in DC's history. So a bunch of us are getting together to talk about the various specials and miniseries and crossovers that led up to Infinite Crisis. It's the event before the event. The whole thing is going to kick off on April 30th, 2020, with a special episode of Views from the Long Box covering the Countdown to Infinite Crisis 80-page giant, and from there, a whole bunch of shows that I will be adding in post-production will discuss these previously mentioned miniseries and crossover issues. And people actually agreed to this? Shockingly, yes! Well, it's probably a good thing that you're going to cover Countdown to Infinite Crisis instead of the Countdown series, because that was a train wreck. Yeah, you know, actually, that was my thinking, too. Now, are you going to help me with this trailer or not? Fine. I will help you with your little trailer. Good. Uh, don't worry, by the way. There won't be any dates for you to get wrong. I hate you so much. JL May 2020. Countdown to Infinite Crisis. The event before the event. This crossover kicks off on April 30th, 2020. On Views from the Long Box. And continues into Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water podcast, Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake, Pop Culture Affidavit, It All Comes Back to Superman, The Fan Holes Podcast, Justice's First Dawn, The Birds of Prey Podcast, Married with Comics, The Coffee and Comics Podcast, The Longbox Crusade, Task Force X, Relatively Geeky Presents, Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace, and the Dr. DC Podcast. In 1984, I was 10 years old, and a strange light lit up the park behind my house. In the middle of the night, still in my pajamas, I ran to investigate. A strange machine sat brooding in the dark. I stepped inside and I was taken to a far-off galaxy where I saw men monsters and gods fight and die join us again on the marvel superheroes secret wars and beyond series part of the pulp to pixel podcasts where we will discuss each issue of the secret wars miniseries and their long-term impact on the characters who joined us on Battleworld and on those we left behind on the home front join us again on Battleworld. return with us to our secret wars All right, folks, let's get into this. Day of Vengeance 1 through 6 and the special, cover dated June 2005 through November 2005, and the special came out a few months after that. Anyway, writer is Bill Willingham, artist is Justiano, and the inker was Walden Wong. Now, let's accept for issue number three. They brought in Ron Wagner and Dexter Vines. Letter is Patrick Brazio. Brazier? How do you say that? Uh, yeah. 
Sure. <laughs> Thanks for your backup. Colorist is Chris. You're so good at this. Chris Chuckry. Editor is Joey Cavallari. And covers are by who? Oh, Walt freaking Simonson. Yes, they are. Oh, my goodness. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. First, we're going to get into sort of a recap of the story in case you don't remember. We're not going to go issue by issue. Even though it merits it, it's that good. Uh, in order to cover all six in a reasonable amount of time, Sean talks a lot. I don't know if you've listened to mm-hmm. him on the Secret Wars podcast. It's just yada, 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 Captain America, yada, 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 Namor, yada, 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 Dr. Doom. <laughs> It just goes on forever. So we're just going to blow through it in one big go. At, at sort of a 10,000-foot level, or, or I guess you could say at the level of Rock of Eternity floating over Gotham City, uh, the story is about a, a motley group of washed-up magical characters, really second-stringers and third-stringers. These guys are the bottom of the barrel. And they are trying to save all the magical beings in the world from the spirits of vengeance, both Spectre and Eclipso. That's the story in a nutshell. But why don't we go ahead and do a more fleshed-out recap. And Sean, why don't you start us off? All right. Thanks, Shag. So Jean Loring, who we've recently discussed, is the <laughs> ex-wife, the ex-wife of Ray Palmer. And that might be because the first time I met her in Sword of Adam number one, she was comparing briefs with a fellow attorney when when Ray Palmer walked in. And she's <laughs> recently convicted of murdering Sue Dibney. So awesome. Awesome, Jean Loring. Yeah, great, great. Darkest moment in DC history. So she is in Arkham Asylum and she is seduced by a mysterious black diamond that transforms her into the new female version of a Eclipso. She escapes Arkham and seeks out the Spectre, who is more vengeful than usual. He's earning the title of this miniseries because he is without (laughs) a human host. He has been recently evicted, has recently been abandoned by Hal Jordan, which I guess makes him another girl from Coast City. Uh, Eclipso... (laughs) Any other girl uh, from... Any other girl from Coast City, exactly. Eclipso persuades the Spectre that all magic is evil because it breaks the laws of nature set by God, which is weirdly not a bad argument. And it makes sense to the Spectre. It really does, yeah. When I read this again, I thought, how does she convince him? I was like, oh, she's pretty convincing. She is an attorney, after all. A really good divorce attorney. (laughs) And so this logic makes sense. Spectre decides to destroy all magic. So the story then rockets us to the Enchantress, who is most famously from The Suicide Squad by John Ostrander and Luke McDonald. And she has barely survived an attack by the Spectre that killed 700 sorcerers. The Enchantress summons the Ragman to her aid, and they retreat to the Oblivion Bar, which is a bar between dimensions where magically powered beings meet and socialize, hang out, have fun, compare wands. The bar is (laughs) packed full of second-rate, and I regret I second rate's a hard term. Magically powered characters. The Enchantress proclaims that the magic world needs to make a stand against the Spectre, but she gets no support because second rate again is strong. We're we're talking whatever comes after Z, whatever the Australians call it, Zed. Whatever follows Zed is the, the type of people in this bar. They make it into the appendix of who's who. Oh my god, right? <laughs> and I've collected DC Comics for years and I was like, who's that? But ultimately, the only beings willing to step up to help her against the Spectre are Ragman, who's got a suit of souls. He's actually way cooler than he sounds. Nightmaster. The bartender of the Oblivion Bar, who's got a magic sword, but has retired from hero life. Blue Devil, who is the, yeah, exactly, who is the bar's bouncer. Nightshade, also formerly of the Ostrander Suicide Squad run. And Detective Chimp, who is a chimp who is drunk in the bar all the time, which is the best episode of Cheers ever. And so the group will eventually claim the name Shadow Pact. There's a lot of history in that name, actually, as we'll learn across the miniseries. And they learn that the Spectre was being seduced and corrupted by Eclipso, 
So their plan is essentially a suicide mission to attack Eclipso with just surprise and numbers and take her off the board, which they are hoping will free the Spectre before he turns on them because one sideways glance and they're done. When the team finds the Spectre, he's locked in combat with Captain Marvel, who had been sent by the wizard Shazam to stall him while more powerful magical entities seek an answer to stop this world, even universe-endangering rampage. So while the Spectre is distracted by Captain Marvel, our heroes, quote-unquote, try to defeat Eclipso. They hope to give Captain Marvel a little extra time so the Enchantress starts siphoning magical energy from the mystics around the world. And she transfers this extra magical power to Captain Marvel. And Chag, why don't you take it from here? The Shadow Pack and Captain Marvel, they temporarily, they, they get the upper hand over Eclipso and the Spectre, astonishingly. Mm-hmm. But it all falls apart because the Enchantress absorbs too much power and goes temporarily insane. Not in a Suicide Squad kind of way, movie, more in a just traditional Enchantress going insane kind of way. So things go horribly wrong. Unfortunately, Spectre and Eclipso escape. Uh, they go off to go lick their wounds and... Actually, they kind of do that quite literally. It's pretty yeah, gross. So. It's gross. Yeah, didn't need to see that. And during all of this, Detective Chimp and Nightshade are working on a backup plan. They've gone off to recruit this teenage girl who goes by the name Black Alice. She has the power to steal other magical abilities for a short period of time, leaving their target powerless. So they uh, they catch up with the Shadow Pack folks, and they all go to the Oblivion Bar with Captain Marvel to regroup. And quite frankly, they're all surprised to even be alive and amazed to have uh, temporarily beaten back the Spectre. Along with Black Alice, the team decides that their next plan of attack is they're going to use Black Alice's ability to steal the Spectre's power. And then, hopefully, we'll be able to defeat Eclipso. Once the plan's in action, Black Alice does, in fact, steal the Spectre's power. And she helps Nightshade teleport Eclipso into the orbit around the sun. Because Mm -hmm. sunlight is basically Eclipso's kryptonite. And unfortunately, our heroes are still unable to defeat the Spectre. Because once his powers are gone, he's just an empty spirit who can't be harmed. And uh, and once the Spectre's powers eventually do return, he travels to the Rock of Eternity to face off against the ancient wizard Shazam. Now, meanwhile, back on Earth, the Phantom Stranger arrives, who's been a mouse throughout this whole miniseries, which is quite funny, and uh, he uses his powers to allow the Shadow Pack to watch the battle between the Spectre and Shazam. The Spectre kills the wizard Shazam, which causes the Rock of Eternity to fall apart, eventually exploding into a zillion pieces above Gotham City. Now, this frees an untold number of evil magical beings, including the living embodiments of the Seven Deadly Sins, who were, you know, they were trapped in those stone statues in Shazam's throne room before this. And we also see, like, Blue Beetle Scarab as it crashes into El Paso, Texas, where Jaime Reyes is going to find it mm-hmm. later. And then back with our heroes, Black Alice, uh, she wants to return home to her dad. And the rest of the Shadow Pack agree to continue the fight. And then it says, to be continued in Infinite Crisis number one. Now, once you get to the end of those six issues and you get that big sort of like, what, the good guys lost kind of moment, uh, you come back a few months later for Day of Vengeance Infinite Crisis special. Now, this was released between Infinite Crisis number three and number four. And what happens in there, it wraps up the whole Day of Vengeance plot. So mm-hmm. the Shadow Pack team up with a whole ton of other magical heroes, a great two-page spread. Of, it's one of those big either like magnifying glass or zooming in, depending on whether you're re- reading physical or digital, where you're just staring at all the faces. You're like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. And so they team up with all these heroes and the seven 
seven deadly sins are recaptured by the Shadow Pack, while the other heroes are rebuilding the Rock of Eternity. Now, sadly, Nightshade was captured by Felix Faust and the Secret Society, and her fate is left unknown at the end of the special. Meanwhile, above the Earth, Naboo, you know, formerly Dr. Fate, is fighting the Spectre, and the Spectre mortally wounds Naboo. But this gets noticed by a higher spiritual authority who then traps the Spectre in a new human host as punishment for his actions. The Rock of Eternity is reconstructed, but Captain Marvel finds out that he has got to remain within the Rock to maintain its power. Uh, And our heroes are told by the dying Naboo that the Ninth Age of Magic is coming to an end and that the Tenth Age of Magic is soon to begin. Now, before entombing himself in the Rock, Captain Marvel hurls Naboo's now-empty helmet randomly out into the world, deciding to let fate figure out who is going to be the next Dr. Fate. And that's where it ends. Oof, man. It's a lot to cover, man. A lot to cover. Lots to cover. What did you think overall? I love it. I really do. And I remember liking this at the time. So of the four miniseries, this was probably the least attractive, maybe second least to Ron Thanagar War. You know, OMAC involved Batman mm-hmm. and Superman and, and Wonder Woman and, and some snaps <laughs> uh, for Maxwell Lord. <laughs> yeah. Some, so there was a real twist for Maxwell Lord there and it built in. Oh, gosh. <laughs> And then Villains United, you know, was basically a, for the Suicide Squad lovers, it was a revisit to that and oh, Lex yeah. Luthor was in it. So there was a lot of appeal. And this was definitely a, an odder, you know, miniseries. It wasn't the one I think people were most drawn to. And yet there is nothing better than a, you know, six against the world story, right? Like the, like, wait, these guys are going to save the right. world kind of storyline. And this is totally done brilliantly. They know they're losers. They know they're fighting literally impossible odds. And they show up anyway. And those, I think, are often my favorite stories because they, have the, the intensity of that crucible reveals some great character bits. And then the beauty of this is none of these characters necessarily need to live. I mean, the highest profile person on this team is Blue Devil, and his book's never been collected. Like, he's <laughs> he, got, he got killed by a sprinkler system in the Louvre, right? Like... <laughs> There is, he's not getting a lot of respect in the DC universe. So the stakes were very real. So I, I remember loving it. And upon reread, actually even more. What about you? Did it, did it live does it, in the same space in your memory? Like, did it live up to that? Yeah, like for me, going in, I was probably most excited about OMAC because I had heard a lot about it and I knew Greg Rucka was great. Ultimately, mm-hmm. that's the one I find the biggest yawner for me personally. And this one was like, I, I was excited for it because I thought it was going to be a Spectre story. I didn't mm-hmm. even know it was going to be a, you know, this team of misfits kind of situation. And so uh, when when we got to that and we start seeing everyone, we go to the Oblivion Bar, you meet all the characters, I'm like, I freaking love this. By the end of issue one, I was all in. So I fell in love with this one, uh, just like I fell in love with Secret Six because that's another one where it's sort of like a bunch of misfit characters come together sort of situation. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, very same vibe. It's funny. Like my memory plays a trick on me here where I remembered the first six issues being fantastic. And then I, I seem to remember the special was just like, I don't know, I, ha- I had a bad taste on my mouth for the special. In mm-hmm. fact, when I talked to you about reviewing this, I only planned for us to talk about the six issues, because partially because the special is after Infinite Crisis starts. But I like, ah, it's, it was just, it wasn't worth our time. But now in rereading it, the, the special is absolutely critical. It's what finishes the story. Yeah. There's no ending without the special. And you and I, I think, had a very similar reaction because of your hesitancy to include it. 
we both kind of remembered like, oh, these specials felt tacked on. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I compare it to the World War Three issues of 52. Oh, gosh. Yeah, which are brutal. <laughs> they slip between your fingers like Tara's brain. And they just oh. don't really <laughs> – that's a you were bad, on a streak, sir. That's a bad simile, man. So anyway, I, they felt tacked on. I remember having that like very like, oh, this is a DiDio money grab. It might be the first time I was consciously aware of the DiDio money grab. And yet, is and my apologies, Mr. DiDio, because in rereading the special, I was like, oh my God, there's no talking about this miniseries without the special because it does tie everything together. And any story that ends with somebody chucking the helmet of Dr. Fate out into the planet and going, let's leave it up to fate. Yeah. Is like, oh, that's brilliant and stupid and brilliant and stupid, but cool, I'm in. <laughs> now, one of the frustrating things is for the people out there who didn't read these individually. By the way, they are available on the DC Universe app. So if you're a subscriber there, you can read the whole thing. It's all in one little section for all seven of them. But trade paperback-wise, the way DC collected it at the time, they put the six issues together with a different storyline. They didn't put the special in there. Oh. You had to buy a different trade paperback to get the special, oh. which is redunculous in hindsight because it's it's so critical to the story. Ugh. That's ridiculous. That's yes. awful. That's awful trade building. Like, shame on DC. <laughs> now, one of the things that was hard for me, too, is I loved this so much. And when it was over, like you mentioned the Dr. Fate thing, they didn't pick that up for like a year, I oh, yeah. want to say. It was a long, long, long time before they came back to that storyline. And then Shadow Pack, like this story ends and you have to wait till Infinite Crisis number seven comes out before Shadow Pack number one comes out. So it's almost a year to the day from when mm-hmm. Day of Vengeance number one drops to when Shadow Pack number one drops. And I remember that time just being a complete like stressor for me. Like I needed these characters so much more and I couldn't wait that long. It was driving me crazy. That's how much I really got invested in this group. Well, and that's just it, right? This this group of characters you barely know really do become so memorable because of the the challenge they're put up against that I was the same way. I wanted more. Like I, I bought Shadow Pack the minute it came out. Now, a big reason I bought Shadow Pack was also because Bill Willingham not only wrote it, but he penciled it, which was like, oh my God, it's like the D&D ads from the back of my comics come <laughs> you, to life. <laughs> you beat me to it. I was convinced <laughs> the ooze or the slime or whatever. Yeah, that he, you know, all those great ads he drew. Oh. <laughs> but it was hard to, you know, it's hard to pass. He has a great style. I mean, he did, he did JLI Annual 1, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and, and again, another piece of art I really love by him. So I would have been in, in either way, but it, it was so nice to open that book and have these characters back. So yeah, he really cemented their voices and their interplay. I mean, as we review the characters a bit, there's a the moment between Enchantress and Ragman. That's one of my favorite moments from the whole mini. Yeah, it's hilarious. So yeah, it's really, the characters are so well developed. And it's funny because I think sometimes when you use lesser known characters, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because they don't have clearly defined voices that you've read for decades and kind of can slide into, you can tend to write them in a way that, you know, feels like just your voice. Like I, I think about, you know, there's some writers who have very distinct dialogue and sometimes they'll take a character and that character just sounds like them. Mm-hmm. And Willingham really gives all of them in a short amount of time, distinct voices, distinct personalities. And he even kind of locks the way they interact together as a group in place in a really cool way. So, it you know, kudos to him because this could have just been, you know, a, a one-off mini that, you know, built up to a bigger event that no one remembered years later. But instead, I would put it up against any of the stuff that came up before Infinite Crisis. And even though it maybe doesn't play as big a role in the Infinite Crisis mini itself, 
I think it's amongst the best of the work that built up to it. Yeah, I would agree. I think now, uh, you know, regardless of what I felt at the time, I think now it's my favorite of all the majors yeah. leading up to it. And one of the things too I like as far as is, is the plotting. It's it's and I noticed this in the second read through because I read it twice getting ready for this episode. It's really paced very well. Like oh, there's, yeah. there's some great action beats. Each issue gives you something to cra- grasp on there, and the story just trucks along. Because I mean, the whole thing takes place over two days, but it just so much happens. But they they also take time to give you the character moments. So I mean. Mm-hmm. Bill really paced this thing out very, very well. So I, I really feel like the plotting and pacing was very well done. Well, I do too. And, and they have their first big almost victory in like issue three. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait a minute. This would normally be the climax of a miniseries like this. Well, they even acknowledge so, it. They say, are we uh, winning? This is great. <laughs> and it's great. And, and even just surviving that fight is a win, right? They're like, wow, we, we're we still alive. This is fantastic. And yet as a reader, you know, oh, wait a minute. If a bunch of Z-list characters have their big moment in the middle of the story that's probably not going to end very well like <laughs> I re- yeah, I've read this book before I read the loser special from Crisis I remember what happens when the heroic moment comes on page 15 instead of page 30 uh oh so I was really worried even upon reread I was really worried and I you know knew what happened to these characters well I'm glad you talked about their voices too because one of the neat things he does is each issue gets a different narrator yeah uh, and, and he uses the caption boxes and even his artistic tricks in the caption boxes like Blue Devil's caption boxes have a little horn on them and Detective Chimps has a magnifying glass and, and Nightmaster has a sword and that kind of thing and so like issue one so each, each issue like issue one is sort of narrated by Ragman and then two is Entry Interest and three is Blue Devil and four is Detective Chimp and five is Nightshade and six is Nightmaster and then the special is Naboo so mm-hmm. you get to really feel that voice quite a bit through the issue and you, you really sort of latch on better to who all the characters are and that was a really nice touch as well well, and that's a great way to reveal character is to have it through the lens of another character because we're getting the their perception of who this person really is. I'm very familiar with some of these characters from other very different runs, but I'd never read Nightmaster before. I had no idea who this guy was. I don't even remember him being in Who's Who, and I listened to a freaking <laughs> podcast about that. You know, like it's I like a good I, show I hear. Yeah, one of the hosts carries the other, but it's it's, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's true either way so yeah, yeah i was waiting for you <laughs> <laughs> the joke was sitting there but uh, you know i don't remember you guys covering him i don't remember him and so for me you know he was a real mystery and yet by the end i have a real sense of who he is i have a sense of why he's leading this group you know reluctantly but still leading this group and i absolutely want more story with him so yeah just fantastic writing by willingham and you're right this it's structured beautifully so that there are all these kind of rises and falls, rises and falls. And he does a couple other things really intelligently. Eclipso is a hard sell. And Gene lowering Eclipso is a really hard sell. And he's smart to use her in doses, right? He doesn't linger too long on her because she's kind of repugnant. And, you know, she killed Sue Dibney. Like, I, I still, I will never get over that. Like, if Gene Loring appeared in front of me and was like, here's world peace, an end to hunger, an end to famine, and every Marvel comic book from 1941 on, <laughs> I would be like, take it away, you killed Sue Dibney. Like, I, like I would not, I just couldn't undo that. And, you know, so they were, even that interplay is really smart because at the end of the day this isn't a story about villains it's a story about reluctant losers fighting against a literally an impossible force and so so yeah Willingham makes great decisions just all across the board you know what we should talk about the covers because you know yes. that, that that's the wrapping that's the packaging here and that's sort of special because they're all by Walt Simonson so yeah 
yes, folks, you can go out and check out all the covers online. There's even some variant covers. So of the of the six plus covers, including variants, which ones did you like the most? So definitely for me, uh, the Day of Vengeance Infinite Crisis special is okay. a, a real standout piece because it also mimics Madame Xanadu number one, okay, which is a beautiful cover from the 70s. I'm pretty sure it's by Marshall Rogers. And it's really a, a lovely image of her and pulling out all the cards and the different members of the Shadow Pact are, are all over the cards. So I love the special. And then I really, really liked the cover to issue two, excuse me, issue three, mm-hmm. which is Captain Marvel and Spectre just duking it out. So those are those are my two favorites. I like how visceral the Captain Marvel and Spectre fight is. I mean, who's better than Simonson at capturing gods doing battle? Right. And then I liked the homage in the special. What about you? I was very torn. Uh, at first, three, four, five, and six are my favorites to start with. So so three is a great choice. Again, it, it, the Captain Marvel versus Spectre. Spectre's just laying out Captain Marvel. Yes. It's really a nice solid punch a lot of uh, oomph to it uh four is <laughs> four is fun just because I, I i love seeing the shadow pack characters together you see enchantress she's blast she's going crazy and she's blasting she's about to kill ragman and, and, and nightmaster is jumping in blocking it with the sword uh five is this great shot of the specter he's all almost like superman like he's got his hand yeah. on his hip he's looking all triumphant and the shadow pack's blasting away at him and they have no hope in hell but this is where it gets <laughs> dumb but i i'm such a sucker for word balloons me um, too and on the cover, Blue Devil says, can't anything stop the Spectre? And Detective Chimp's running away because you get a fight or make small talk, which sounds just <laughs> like Detective Chimp. It's the perfect voice for him. And then issue six is the, is the big hero shot of the yeah. whole Shadow Pack together. So I think I have to pick six because it, seeing Walt Simonson draw all of the, uh, the Shadow Pack together there in their big hero moment and a great Blue Devil and everything and, and Detective Chimp, I, that's my favorite. I think it's number six. Yeah, and just to even get him to do the covers is huge because I don't associate Walt Simonson with DC very often, even though I know he did a lot of DC work and very famous DC work. For me, you know, I met him at Thor. And so for me, he's Thor and he's X-Factor. And I just have always associated him with, with Marvel, even though if you ever get a chance to read his Orion book mm. from the 90s, it's him drawing and writing. And it's just the most beautiful thing, one of the most beautiful things ever produced. So I love to get to see him draw these characters. And then, yeah, I'm the same way, man. You put a word balloon, not only a word balloon on a cover, but you actually used the Spectre's logo when they said, you know, nothing can beat the Spectre. Right. I'm all in. Well, they use the Power Shazam logo, too. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, you talk about Walt Simonson being a Marvel guy. So it's funny. You're right. He hasn't drawn as much DC, but there's like one DC book that sticks out in my mind with Walt Simonson. So like, even though there's huge, huge library of Marvel stuff, one of the books that always jumps to mind first is a first issue special with Dr. Fate mm-hmm. that Walt Simonson drew and Marty Pascoe wrote. It's the guidebook for Dr. Dr. Fate comics from then on, basically. Yeah. It's that good. And so even though it's just one issue, it stands out in my mind. And it's sort of relevant for, for here. So I was very thrilled to see Walt Simonson on these covers. Um, now, here's where I'll, I'll be a bit critical. It's not all of them are great, though. Like, the cover to number two is pretty weak. It's just this guy getting attacked by crows. Even the cover of number one, like, it's uh, where, where Spectre's beating down on Blackfire Thorn, which is a great concept. Like, Spectre's mouth is just this weird, creepy smile. So the, there's some things I don't actually love on these covers. But uh, there's, there's probably more to love than not to love. I think he's purposely going for an aesthetic. Yeah. I don't think he's going for modern day sort of covers where everyone's a poster or everyone's an you know iconic image. I actually think he's doing a, a very purposeful homage 
to like late 60s or like mid 70s covers that are a little grimier, a little dirtier. There's more of the story of the issue happening on the cover. I actually think he's doing this on purpose. I think he's going for something. I think he's going for a look like those horror books from the 70s mm. or like those adventure comics with the Spectre because they they definitely the minute I saw them I was like, "Oh yeah, he's he's purposely drawing back on that." You're right. There's not the iconic like I want to blow this up as a poster even though actually the Day of Vengeance special is really great or issue 6. <laughs> But it, I, I think he was trying for something, and so I liked it. I liked the aesthetic he was he was going for, even though they're not probably his. You know, if you if, if you and I were on a BuzzFeed article doing the top one hundred you know, <laughs> oh Walt Simonson covers, I don't know that a lot of these would make it. But I still think they're pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fair. Sorry, one thing that is noticeably absent from all these covers is Eclipso. So, yeah. and I think it's because DC was a little nervous doing this big change with Gene Laurie, and and I do want to get into that real quick. So, I'm first off, I, I love right in the first issue the scene where Gene is being seduced by the diamond. I really mm-hmm. think that's a clever piece of writing. You only hear her side of the conversation. You know, I'm not that kind of girl. I mean, just a lot of things she yells at the diamond where she's clearly crazy, but it, it, it's really interesting and really well done, and the illustration's fantastic. So I really like that. And the idea of her becoming a Calypso, I'm really, really torn on it. I will just say mm-hmm. straight up, the whole sexy uh, bustier kind of thing, I hate that. The rest of her outfit actually seems very cool and interesting. If they could have just done away with the sex appeal part of it, I probably would have been a lot better with it. So so the two big pieces that I, I go back and forth on with Gene is Eclipso. First of all, uh, on one hand, I'm still, as you said, very hurt by the death of Sue Dibney. And mm-hmm. every time I see Gene Loring, it's just like a stab in the heart reminding me, right? But then you got to step back and think about Gene is she's not, oh, prior to the Eclipso thing, she's not actually evil. She was suffering from mental illness. And perhaps she deserves a chance uh, for treatment or recovery even, right? Mm-hmm. And instead, she becomes straight up evil. And, and so it sort of associates evil with mental illness which isn't very fair. So I don't like that aspect of it. Now, I'll flip it around and play the other side of the argument, which is I also kind of love it because I feel like the Eclipso <laughs> needed some kind of refresh after Darkness yeah. Within. You know, they did a little bit in JSA. wasn't all that interesting. So uh, it's it's been 10 years since Darkness Within. Time to see something different. So doing a gender swap, being just a spirit of vengeance, why can't you do a gender swap? There's no reason you can't. And a villain wearing the face of a character that you used to love, a supporting character, you know, a character's wife, that actually carries some resonance. So I am completely split down the middle. Uh, there's no, like, I'm indifferent about it. I, I love it and hate it at the same time. How do you feel about it? Uh, well, thanks for asking. I was actually halfway through that. I was like, why the hell would he invite me on the show? He's like, I'm going to, I love this, but also I hate it. I'm going to talk to myself about how much I love and hate it. It's <laughs> a lot more interesting than listening to you. I'm just saying. Exactly. I was like, wow, I could listen to this for hours. No, I look, I, I agree with you. I think there are a lot of people for whom the Gene Loring Eclipso thing was the big turnoff of this miniseries, right? Like mm-hmm. it, I don't know if it felt like a betrayal. I, I, I don't, how invested are people in Gene Loring? For me, she's the DC Universe's ex-wife. Like I don't have any emotional attachment to her. And I've read a lot of those Adam stories. But again, when I met him, she had just cheated on him. And so I, I've never particularly liked the character. And then the the Sue Dibney thing, you're right. She is depicted as suffering from mental illness. I can see that to a point. But she also took a fi- flamethrower and like did a moonwalk on Sue Dibney's brain. And I just, <laughs> yeah, like I can't, I can't, so I just like, I can't get past that. So for me, though, I, I, what, what does allow me to move past it is I don't think she's Jean Loring once the Black Diamond possesses her. That's fair. It needed a human host, right? Mm-hmm. And it needed to anchor to somebody. And the people behind that move, which you know we'll learn in Infinite Crisis, they use Jean Loring purposefully because it will – 
emotionally stab at enough of the the people they're trying to distract that it will prove an even better distraction. But I actually think there's an interesting dichotomy happening in this in that both Eclipso and the Spectre are forces of, of the universe that need to be tied to a human host. And he's in this miniseries, what happens when he doesn't have a host and Eclipso is what happens when it does have a host. And so for me, she it's not Gene Loring. It's just Eclipso manipulating everything around it to to get the Spectre to do its bidding. So that was kind of my way around it. I don't even know. I didn't realize that that's what I had done until you were arguing back and forth with yourself. And I you know, was <laughs> filing my nails. I call that morning in the mirror. But anyway. <laughs> but I do think it's – I think it's actually them making a larger point about – Two big forces that need human hosts to sort of ground them or anchor them to something. But you're right. The Gene Loring choice is definitely controversial. And the truth is it could have been anybody. It doesn't have to be Gene Loring. It's You can see it being an editorial decision to call back to identity crisis. And I don't like that. And you can see it being a writing choice like, oh, look how clever I am. And I don't like that. But I can excuse it if I say, oh, this is, you know, Alexander Luther, Superboy Prime. They're what? taking the, the best shot they can to distract the heroes, which is the whole point of these minis, so that they can do their clever machinations, you know, and, and eventually come to our Earth and punch the heads off of Teen Titans. And so – You're making me nauseous, man. I know. Well, there's a lot. This is such – you guys touched on this in the in the episode with Michael Bailey. This is a violent time for DC. And those are the moments that are really punctuated for me. So I agree with you. I think it's a controversial choice. It is not a choice I liked at the time. But I like that Willingham uses her in doses and that I really like that he takes her off the board. So, mm-hmm. so I'm okay with it ultimately. Ultimately, because the story ultimately uses her well, but it is a it's a wonky choice. Well, if I remember right, I think she gets used a lot later in other books as well. So I think she's, I think at least, uh, and if I remember, she's used more effectively here than other places, if I recall. Yes, she stays yeah. Eclipso a while, doesn't she? She is Eclipso for longer than she should be. <laughs> but and this is this is the best depiction of it because this is more Eclipso as an entity, and she happens to be the thing hosting it. When they delve into her being actually more Gene Loring crazy with power that's when it actually gets a little you know that's when you start having that bad taste in your mouth of like oh this isn't a depiction of mental illness that i'm okay with and this isn't a depiction of crazy ex-girlfriend that i'm okay with so yeah i like to in, in my mind it all kind of stops here in fact in my mind in my head canon she's just she's still floating around the sun right like she's just still out there yeah so Perfect. she's all good <laughs> so my friend sean and I, I use that term very loosely uh, my friend sean <laughs> is on a show called marvel secret wars and beyond over in the pulp to pixel podcast Podcast network, and one of the things they like to do is surprise each other on the show Uh-oh. with a secret question. So, Sean, <laughs> I have prepared a secret question for you. Who, in your opinion, is Marvel's version of Gene Loring? Oh, oh, that's a really good secret question, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're, it is. you're bringing the heat on this one. So, okay, so she has to have whoever it is, he or she has to have certain qualities, right? They have to have been close to a hero. Well, it's entirely your own choice of what those qualities are. But yeah, that's fair. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm kind of building my argument here. So they, that person has to be close to a hero. Mm-hmm. They, they had to have been intimately close to a hero. Uh, they have to betray the hero emotionally in some way. They have to be just really unpleasant. And they have right to be now we're building a case for Dr. G. But anyway, go ahead. Ah, that actually is where I was going. Dr. <laughs> G's is my universal ex-wife. So, <laughs> so really unpleasant and then kind of just leaves a sour taste in your mouth whenever that person shows up. 
Oh, Mantis. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's Mantis. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Oh, I'm on. Yeah, sorry. You got me here. So I love Steve Englehart. There's a lot of his work that I really admire. The thing I cannot let go of with him is that from like 1977 onward, anything he wrote, including like the instructions on the back of a a matchbox, had to have Mantis show up. And I don't understand. Even DC Comics, he brings a character in who's effectively Mantis. She is the the least interesting character on the face of the planet. Her speech pattern is annoying. He shoehorns her into his Silver Surfer run as a love interest. And I was like, I've met Bread more interesting than her. And somehow Norrin Rad's going to fall in love with her. And so she is. she's completely grating as a character. She makes everything she's in worse. She does, yeah, she just is not additive. And yet she has weird, intimately close relationships with a number of heroes and she won't go away and she's horribly misused. Yeah, I'm going to go with Mantis. Like, what are your thoughts on that? That's How's good. that working That's for you? That's good. I, now, I don't have a lot of experience with Mantis. I have giant blind spots in my Avengers reading. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of it's the Roger Stern run. I, I began correcting that and read a lot of the Roger Stern Avengers mm-hmm. right before DC loaded all their comics into DC Universe and suddenly <laughs> I got sidetracked. I haven't read a ton of Mantis, but every time she shows up, I really can't stand her. So yeah. that's pretty fair. I like what they did with her in Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay, thank you. But not in the comics. So, okay, that's good. Uh, Yeah. My answer, I think Mm -hmm. you'll like this one, Madeline Pryor. Oh, that is slanderous. Okay, go ahead. You're not wrong. Close to to Scott Summers, right? Yes. Falls in love. They even have a child together. It's a wonderful Mm -hmm. marriage. Everyone's rooting for him. And then she goes and we find out she is evil and she's the demon goblin. Right? And she yeah. continues to screw with him for a long time. I mean, there's there's a lot of parallels between she, uh, Madeline becoming Demon Goblin and Gene uh, becoming Eclipso. No, it's a it's a really good analogy in their ultimate paths to like a darker power and being infused with a darker force. So it's a, it's a really good answer. The, the part you're leaving out is... The, the cheating, horrible person? <laughs> that, yeah, that she marries Cyclops and they have a baby together and then he decides to be the archetypal 1980s dad and and he goes off to the younger, hotter girl and That's just true. abandons his family. <laughs> that's true. So he's sort of the evil one in that. That's fair. So, But no, that's I, a good answer. I, I don't think there's a one for one, but I think we both came up with pretty good analogs for those characters. More importantly, that was a killer secret question. Well, that's a, that was a really good one. Yes, well I, done. I fully expect that Sean did not prepare one, and now he's scrambling sheets of notebook paper trying to think of one right now. So, Did I, did I mention my Instox trade pick? <laughs> <laughs> You came prepared. Well done, sir. So something else I noticed as I'm reading, and I never noticed this before, and I can't believe I'm kicking myself for this. Folks, you may know the Fire and Water Podcast Network was founded originally on a show about Aquaman and Firestorm. And in issue one of this comic, they're running through this forest, and there's all these dead sorcerers everywhere. And Ragman's like, who's that down there? And she says, oh, that's just John Raven here. He's dead. Don't worry about it. And I don't know why I didn't put it together at the time. That's Black Bison, Mm -hmm. the Firestorm villain. And I'm like, what? Oh, no. So uh, my little heart broke when I found out that John Ravenhair, Black Bison, was dead in the story. Makes me so sad. Well, and also, you just have to ask yourself, they the guy they gave that guy the name John Ravenhair, but his superhero name is Black Bison? Like, how do you not pick Ravenhair or Raven? Right. Okay, fair. Just but a bad choice. No, we shall never be search the, uh, the decisions <laughs> of Jerry Conway on this show, so it's not going to happen. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. So uh, the artwork internally. Well, how do you feel about the book? The art, now, the art does change in issue three. We do get a fill-in artist. Uh, mm-hmm. But other than that, how do you feel about the art? The art is fantastic. In fact, it was one of the standouts when you posted this piece on Twitter. One of the, the reasons I reacted and one of the reasons I reacted as viscerally and as positively as I did is the art in this is fantastic. 
fantastic. Yeah. And, and, you know, we'll get to the artist in a bit, but let's talk about the art first. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Let's no, just no, do let's it. Let's put it on the table. Neither Sean nor I knew going into this. Yes. The, um, let's just call it the unfortunate decisions the artist made with his life and his time in prison. So, yes. um, we both Googled this after the fact because other people brought it to our attention and we're not really going to say much else about it. He sounds like a pretty horrible human being. Yes. Um, so we're going to focus on, I think you said the work, not the artist. Is that how you phrased it? Yeah. Yeah. And I like to think that some of the images he drew in these books are the things he will be encountering after death. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, yeah, let's, let's just focus on the work. Yep, absolutely. So, okay. <laughs> but what I, what I will say is the work itself is, is fantastic. And as I was going through it, I remember loving it at the time. It's a really crisp style. It was a style you weren't seeing uh, at the time at DC or Marvel. And I couldn't figure it out. And this time as I was going through it, it, it honestly, it was about issue six mm-hmm. where it was just in the back of my brain. Like, what is this reminding me of? Why do I love the art so much? It looks like a combination of the best qualities of Chris Bacciolo and Greg Capullo. Oh, wow. Okay. It's got uh, Chris Bacciolo's sort of weirdness, like the weird angular positions of bodies. Like there are moments in this miniseries where Enchantress in particular is doing magic and her body is contorted and in ways that are unnatural. And it's, it's really cool. And he's not drawing attention to it. It's not the purpose of the panel. It just adds to the overall aesthetic. And then every character in this book has faces like they were drawn by Greg Capullo, those sort of soft eyes, but angular chins. And it really is working for me. It is definitely hitting a, you know, book about magic vibe. And it is definitely conveying the story. It's, you know, pretty rare where you find an artist who both draws beautiful and dynamic issues, but is also great at storytelling. And I don't ever have a moment where the storytelling suffers in this book. So yeah, I I responded really well to the art. And what about you? Did you at the time, did you? And then was it as good as you remembered? Yeah, no, it's, I I loved it at the time and I still love it. I think the art is absolutely phenomenal. I'm not as eloquent as you. I just like them, them pretty pictures, but uh, (laughs) I would agree with everything you said. To me, what I felt like I was seeing was echoes of early uh, Mike, and I can never say his last name, Mike Magnolia. Mignola? I can't say it. So I've, I'd always said Mignola, and then somebody corrected me and said it's Mignola. So I started saying Mignola, and somebody corrected me and said it's Mignola. So <laughs> it all works. We all know who you're talking about. <laughs> so for me, I, I kind of saw his early stuff. I mean, when I say, I don't mean early Hellboy, but I'm talking more like when he was on Alpha Flight and, and yeah. things like that, where he still was drawing uh, a lot more grounded, but it's still you could still tell it was him. You'd see mm-hmm. a character that looked just weird and outlandish and, or body horror or something, and you'd be like, oh, wow, that's pretty trippy. And I feel like you see a lot of that in here. Like some, especially the first couple issues of Detective Chimp, where he's there's so much shadows going on yeah. in him, and he's so craggy in the face, and he just looks run down and beaten down. Now later on, as Shadow Pack would go on, he looks more like a chimpanzee. Here, it, it, he looks like a I don't even he's scary looking actually at first. I'm looking at the first page of him with with a cigarette and the drink and everything, and he he mm-hmm. just looks downright spooky and looks very Mignola to me. I, I think it's outstanding artwork, and I absolutely love it. And I wish I could see um, more of this artwork. And uh, unfortunately, now we're not going to for those reasons we discussed, which is very yeah. uh, frustrating. Yeah, and because the art is really, it really is fantastic. And, you know, we should definitely give a, a shout out to the colorist, too, mm. because the, the coloring in this book is beautiful. And it's, the you know, again, the dark shades, the dark tones that flip suddenly when there's a new, you know, a new setting. And it, it's it's all just, it's all really working. And to be really honest... 
this book is better than it should have been. Yeah. I mean, this is a, you know, fourth tier miniseries leading up to an event by creators who aren't necessarily big names at the time. I mean, Fables, I don't know where Fables is at this point, but I don't think Bill Willingham is Fables Bill Willingham just yet. That's fair. Now, those those of us who've collected comics, you know, in the 80s and 90s know him from the Elementals and some other places. But, you know, then Justiniano, I mean, I didn't know who that was. And, uh, you know, clearly <laughs> I didn't know where he went. But, <laughs> but it's definitely, it's a better creative team working better together than all rights by all rights they should have and it's it's definitely clicking it just all beautifully came together it's in some ways now i realize i host i host a jli podcast so i tend to compare everything to that but jli was is perfect confluence of the right writers with the right artists Mm -hmm. and the right characters all at the same time just all by luck sheer luck that it all came together and was hugely successful and i feel like in a lot of ways it's the same thing here because this group of characters should not have worked Uh it shouldn't have you know this type of story at this time in DC, which is all about Superman, all about Batman, all about Wonder Woman, shouldn't have worked, but it did. Now, was it? A, it wasn't a ginormous commercial success, so I don't mean to make it out sound like it was the biggest thing DC had, but it was strong enough to support Shadow Pack for several years. So, yeah. um, I I think it's a it's a great win all the way around. Now, a, a couple more things on the art before I forget. Issue one, Ragman. I, now, I, I've loved Ragman probably, I, I think I first discovered him when Pat Broderick was drawing that miniseries that first came yes, out. Yes, that and was so good. I love that book, and, and I've loved Ragman ever since. I don't know that Ragman has ever looked better than when he does in issue one here. When he's going through the city, and he's ripping that part of guy, that guy apart, and, he, and now some of it's the caption boxes, because Ragman narrates the first issue, and you're finding out a lot of what's going on inside the cloak and what the souls are doing to help him, but the art just looks phenomenal. It looks so strong, so good. And that's where the Chris Pachalo piece comes in for me, really, Mm. because he draws like Spider-Man or Venom. This is how Pachalo draws those characters where they're more uh, arachnid-like, you know, they're more sort of insect-like. And Ragman in this this book is otherworldly. And even the way his body's positioned when he's chasing down this criminal and he's going to add him to his rags, which is such a weird and gross power. And it's funny because my experience with him was from that same Pat Broderick drawn miniseries from the 80s. Mm -hmm. And I have a special attachment to it in part because I'm Jewish and that that miniseries is steeped in Jewish lore mm-hmm. it really has a lot of about a Jewish mysticism and and it's you know it's one of the rare Jewish superheroes and so I've always kind of you know been a big fan of his I've always attached to him but yeah he's never looked better and then he's so great in this miniseries and my favorite moment I mentioned it earlier but he gets drawn to where the Enchantress has been and, and these you know 700 sorcerers have died and they you know they have this very intense moment where they're talking about the specter and they're going to, you know, what's going to happen and people are going to die. And the, the way it's drawn, the way it's depicted, they, it feels like they're having a moment. Right. <laughs> and he leans in to kiss her and she is like, what are you doing? No, don't do that. <laughs> what an inappropriate time. And then later on, they battle the specter and they, you know, just barely survive and they're all standing there exhausted on the battlefield and she goes, oh, this is the exact kind of moment where Ragman tries to kiss you, everybody. Watch out. And it's like, oh... <laughs> It's so good. She's like, she's like just the, the mainlining Emma Frost, basically, like just completely eviscerates him in every way. And it's, it's really beautiful. I absolutely love it. He says, you know, I'm probably not the only guy in the world that's misread a situation. So I just, I love that bit because it's, it feels sort of honest, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. Ragman, out of all the characters, he's probably the most regular guy, regardless of yes. what his powers are, when he's got the suit on, this different. But when he's, when he's got the hood off, he's just Rory, right? Rory Reagan, I think his name is. Yeah. And I don't think, now I think, Think about it. I don't think they ever call him by his name in the whole series. They just call him Ragman. Hmm. 
Yeah, or they call him Rags. Yeah, they, yeah they, I didn't they notice that till really, this moment. Yeah, so I, he's the most kind of down-to-earth guy, and you just feel bad for him. And I think we've all had that moment. I mean, I, I remember being in high school, and I was had gone out on a date with a girl, and, and we were in my car, you know, outside in front of her house, and we're talking, and the date had gone really well, and I, you know, I'm sitting thinking, there's a moment, and I lean in for a kiss, and she puts her hand out and goes, oh no, and like, puts her hand in my face, and I'm sitting there with her hand on my face, and I don't know what to do, so I go, face high five! And she just looks at me, and she goes, face high five? And I go, well, it was either that or like just sit here in the moment. And she goes, face high five? That was your recovery? And I go, sorry. I go, I'm so sorry. I clearly misread that. She goes, oh, no, you totally didn't. I wanted to kiss you. She goes, but my mom's in the window. And I was like, oh, good save. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, so I read the moment right, but I just, you know, as always, my timing was off. But yeah, face high five. That's that's my that's my advice to anybody to recover from that moment. <laughs> I, I'm going to use that later tonight when I go see my wife. I'm going to go face high five, baby. <laughs> wow, I don't know how to follow that up. So I'm going to just get right back into the art. You've heard of oversharing, right? Anyway, so there's, there's some great moments in this with a specter where he is just enormous. We're talking, you know, yeah. I don't know, 50 stories tall, whatever. Like he's fighting Blackbire Thorn. Um, he's fighting uh, Captain Marvel, and there's a couple different imageries where he's like up against a sky. You can see planets behind him, just pitched in battle. And damn, it looks amazing. Uh, seeing the Spectre at that sort of scale, godlike, is just awe-inspiring. And he really illustrates the hell out of it. I mean, you really get the sense of larger than life, and I, I love that aspect of that. Yeah, the scale really works. In the Shadow Pact is always depicted as really small and set against the, this giant scenery of the Spectre, and even when the Spectre Spectre's fighting Captain Marvel, you know, Captain Marvel's normal size, but as he's absorbing the magic, you know, he's growing and the Spectre's growing and, and it really just further underscores how small this team is and how big the odds are against them, which again, it's the, that's the heart of the book. This is a scrappy, you know, group of heroes trying to save the, the universe, really. And that's, they, the art reinforces it, which is when comics are at their best, right? When when the, the art is reinforcing the theme and the and, of the writing and it's all playing really well together here. Let's get into those scrappy characters. So we'll just kind of trip hammer through. We said a lot about a lot of these already, so we may not have a lot to say in each character, but you know, like let's start with Nightmaster, right? Leader of the team, Jim Rook, used to be the this former hero in like another dimension, and now he's mm-hmm. just a bartender. So what, what, what do, did you feel like you connected with him? What I liked about him is the, I'm too damn old for this <laughs> hero. You know, because he's an older guy, he's got a little bit of a pudge, you know, a little dad bod, but he steps into the breach, and they all say like, well, you're going to lead us. And he's like, well, I, I should shouldn't lead you, but you go here and you go here and you go. And so I, I've always liked that moment. He's like the Murtaugh of this group. So, <laughs> and, and he actually gets an interesting arc in Justice League Dark later, which I know we're going to talk about like maybe the legacy of this book in a bit. So I, I do have a bit more connection with him, but I didn't know him before this book. Yeah, I didn't remember him. Now, he was in Who's Who, which you absolutely oh, failed to remember, by the way. Like <laughs> Charles Vess, no less. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that was a big mistake. Shame on you. And a lot of times, I think those Who's Who entries are why characters come back. Like, yeah. I I don't know if Bill Wellingham remembers Nightmaster from his series, but he really good chance he remembers a Charles Vest drawing. So that's kind of my thought. But either way. I like there's some bits in there where like he's cleaning the chain mail later and he's talking about how he's forgotten how much the chain mail chafes and stuff like that. So yeah, he was a lot of fun. I really, I enjoy the, you know, the grumpy old bartender character who's, as you said, forced into action. So yeah, he was great. I didn't feel a huge connection to him because I didn't, I felt like he was one of the characters we didn't find out a lot about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm hoping, I, I'm going to go back and reread Shadowback as well. So I'm hoping we get a lot more there. But so far, it, he was a great character, but I feel like there's a lot more potential after at the end of this. Now, the next character did get explored 
quite a bit, and now I'm a bit biased because I love me some Blue Devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say, and I, I think most Blue Devil fans will back me up, that this is the first believable version of Blue Devil since the original series ended. You know, the Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn series ended in 1986, nearly 20 years before this. This is the first time Blue Devil's read like Blue Devil, and uh, it's he's fantastic in this. So I have a confession. I did not read Blue Devil in the 80s. Well, Sean, uh, it's really nice having you on the show. Thanks for stopping <laughs> I was, by. I was waiting for that, and it's probably deserved. It is. I, I did not buy this book, and for some reason, DC released a lot of these kinds of books at that moment, right? And I, I latched onto Booster Gold, and I loved me some Yellow Green Lantern. You know, like he, he was great, but I just Blue Devil. It was you know, the, I bought Blue Beetle, I bought all these other books, but for some reason, that one was out of just off my radar. And at the time, and I regret this because I've definitely come around. Paris Collins art at the time to me was silly. It was like, well, at the time, again, I was a young kid and I wanted a little bit more maturity in my books, which is just dumb. And so I thought his art was silly. And yet I was buying buying Blue Beetle and I was buying some other stuff and not really putting together that it was also him. And so it's funny because it's always been a a blind spot in my collecting. And then only like... A few years ago, I was in my local comic shop and they would put these packs together of like, you know, discount comics. And I got Blue Devil like 1 through 25 for like $9. Nice. I mean, it was some ridiculous and they were like in great shape. It was awesome. And I read it and I was like, oh, I get it now. Oh. Yeah, I totally get it now. This character is awesome. He's a blast. This is totally missing from comics right now. He's amazing. And then really my defining memory of him before that had been him dying in in an issue of Starman. Right. Because the mist puts holy water in a sprinkler system. Like, just a really, you know, ignoble death. And and I thought, oh, well, this character can't be that meaningful then. And, and so it was nice to – I like him in this mini. I like him as kind of the rough, gruff, more direct and kind of funny guy. And they play that up in Shadow Pack. I think you'd really like, you know, what what's done with him there. Well, I, re- I loved it at the time. I just haven't reread it in a long time. So I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to diving back in. But yeah, he's fantastic. There's this great moment too when Enchantress loses her mind. She's gone evil. She's full of power. And there's all this tension and the team's talking about retreating and running away and they're all backing away and Blue Devil's just going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, sure. And he's walking towards her and he just punches her lights out. (laughs) It's this great moment where it's like, oh, yeah, I guess with magical characters, you can just punch them sometimes. Mm -hmm. You don't have to defeat their magical power. So it's it's a great sort of wake up uh, reality check moment and it's it's a perfect for Blue Devil. I just, I love him in this series and I I have many Blue Devil action figures. I've got the Eagle Moss of him in the Shadow Pack outfit. I've got that Pryland display in my office. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it makes me very happy. Uh, another sort of breakout character from here is Detective Chimp. Oh my gosh. You were started talking about him when we got started here. So did you know Detective Chimp going into this? So the only time I had seen him prior to this was in a two-part Green Lantern Flash crossover okay. from the 90s mm-hmm. where, I don't know if you remember this, they're fighting Hector Hammond and Gorilla Grodd. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And, Rex, yeah, Rex and shows the, up in that one too, right? Exactly, yeah. And I don't remember what they're called. They're called like the D- Department of Talking Animals or something. But it's there's this organization in the government where like super smart animals are there and, and Detective Chip runs it. I don't remember that. Wow. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. He runs it and Rex goes out on the mission with the Flash and Green Lantern and that's the only thing I knew him from was this silly little two part story. So I was like oh wait that was a real thing? And then I'm like oh and he's this cool? Like he he is you said maybe the breakout character? No he is absolutely the breakout character. I mean he's 
funny. He's a curmudgeon. He's a drunk. I love his explanation of he's like, yeah, he's like, I, you know, I was a chimp. I was in a traveling circus and, you know, my, my owner was a nice guy and things were great. Then I went and drank from the fountain of youth with Rex the Wonder Dog <laughs> and <laughs> right. people freaked out when I started talking and showing intelligence. And then I realized I was alone and would be alone forever. And so I drank for the last 50 years. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've known that guy. Like I met that, met that guy before. <laughs> I call him Uncle Bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Seriously. I was like, just come over Thanksgiving and the, the circle is complete. But I, I really loved him in this and I like how he grows in it. Like, what about, had you had any experience with him or were you like, oh my God, talking monkey? I knew of him. I would have read those flash issues. I can remember Rex in those issues very clearly. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten Detective Chimps in there. I probably had read the DC Comics Presents story where he does drink from the Fountain of Youth with Rex, but I, nothing really formative. So when I got to this, it was like, oh, I know that character, but wow. So here's a unique thing for me, and I doubt anyone else has this problem. I hear Detective Chimp's voice. Like all the other characters, I'm just reading their stories. I know them, whatever, but I don't always hear a voice. I hear his voice, and his voice is a bad Humphrey Bogart impersonation for me. Oh, that works. More specifically, he is – I'm embarrassed to admit this. He is a character from the cartoon Shirt Tales. Uh, <laughs> there was a character called Bogey Orangutan. He was this little orangutan, and he talked like this all the time. That's a terrible impersonation. <laughs> but he talked like like a, a really bad Humphrey Bogart impersonation the whole time. And that's what I hear for Detective Chimp. And as I read it, it works perfectly. It's great. That's awesome. That is awesome. No, that's that's totally – yeah. I definitely hear a gravelly voice when I yeah. – I, I didn't have that specific reference. No, but it also speaks to the kind of voice he's given. I mean he's that curmudgeonly, you know, drunk guy in the bar who pulls himself up and goes, all right, let's go fight the specter. <laughs> like, right, whatever. exactly. <laughs> he's the one who stands up. And right, the chimpanzee is the one who says we got to go. Everyone else is like, no. I love that. So the Enchantress, I, I guess she would be, what, gorgeous babe number one or whatever, according to <laughs> Detective Chimp, right? I love that. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. He's like, okay, gorgeous babe number one, gorgeous babe number two. And then at one point, Ragman's like, are you really hitting on them? And he's like, oh, no, they're disgusting. Humans are disgusting. And I was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> So Enchantress, I really like her weakness of, of getting drunk with power. I like that yeah. a lot. Um, I like her much better than the Suicide Squad movie version here. And uh, I think I like her better than the depiction in the Suicide Squad comic book. I, I, I like the way this all works out with her character in this. Yeah, I was trying to think of the actress that played her in the Suicide Squad movie, and then I remembered it was a rice cake, because that's about as much personality as they gave that character. <laughs> I, which I feel bad. That actress might be the best actress of all time, but that just, that was the worst character. I, and I love her. I mean, I know you and I are big fans of the John Ostrander, Luke McDonald suicide mm-hmm. run from the eighties. And she and Nightshade are, are major characters in that. So I have such good memories of her. And then that, you know, that trope of her getting drunk with power is played very effectively in those, in that book as well. But she was great in this book. She's, she's kind of a badass. Like I always thought of her as just the Charlie Day of the Suicide Squad. You know, she's just the wild card. But I mean, she is the big power on this team, and almost single-handedly takes the Spectre down. So I, I loved her. Do you? Did you like her depiction in this? Did it feel like that Ostrander version? Well, it, it felt a little different to me than Ostrander. I always felt the Ostrander version was was kind of a bad guy, you know, just helping yeah. with. And maybe I'm misremembering because I haven't reread the full Suicide Squad run in a long time. I've read bits and pieces here and there again, but not all of it in a while. But I, I always felt like she was a you call it wild card. I kind of like being the the Doctor Smith of the team is kind of. What I always felt like mm. she was the 
pain in the yeah. butt who was going to bite him in the butt later. Whereas here, I feel like when she was June Moon or whatever, she's, and again, I don't think they use her real name in this either. Either Now mm-hmm. I think about it. She's very heroic. Very heroic. Making the right choices on the side of Angel. She calls her the vanilla version or something like that. She's <laughs> great. So I really like that aspect of it. I, I, I really like this character. And uh, also the artist draws her exceptionally hot. So there's that. Yeah, she's she's really, really well depicted in this. And there's a great moment. This It's one of my favorite moments in this book where she and Ragman are having that heated discussion that he misreads. And she says to him, hey, at some point, like I have this thing where if I get power and I get too much, I turn evil. And he, she gives him a gun. Yep. And he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, I want you to put me down if this happens. And she's dead serious. And he's like, I'm not going to shoot you. I'm not going to shoot you. And then he's trying to be gallant. And he's like, but you know, I could absorb you into my rags and you could spend a millennium trying to redeem yourself to get to heaven. And she's like, okay, dude, whatever. That works too. Awesome. Now let's kiss. Like, that's what you were reading in this moment. But that <laughs> that gun moment is really great because it's it's such an intrusion in the story and it emphasizes, you're right, a, a much more heroic version of herself that's willing to sacrifice for the greater good, which, yeah, we never saw in Suicide Squad. Yeah. All right, so moving on to Nightshade. Now, I said a minute ago, Detective Chimp would refer to Enchantress as uh, hot babe number one. I don't think he ever actually says that about Enchantress. And now I think about it, what he does say is about Nightshade. Mm-hmm. And he calls her, uh, and I wrote it down here, gorgeous magic babe number two. Which I love, the, I love the fact that she's offended by the number two part. Not the rest yeah. of it. She's only offended. <laughs> So I don't think he actually ever refers to Enchantress as number one, uh, Gorgeous Bay, but that's it's implied. Certainly. It's implied. Yeah. So Nightshade, this is one of my criticisms. Actually, I feel like she's a little bit underdeveloped. Of all the characters, I feel like I know her least. And, and I sort of feel like they acknowledge that a little bit in her issue where she's the narrator. You, mm-hmm. you get a little sense that she's still trying to figure out herself too, I think. I feel like she's even less developed than uh, Jim Rook was. Well, I think Willingham has the least handle on her voice, mm-hmm. which might be because she's also the most well-developed character, maybe outside of Blue Devil. She has such a distinctive voice in the Ostrander Suicide Squad run that he doesn't quite have a handle on it. But you're right. He does a really cool writerly thing where she even thinks to herself, well, I'm changing a lot. I don't really know who I am right now, which kind of lets the writer off the hook. That's really smart, right? That's really good writing. What do you think of her costume? Do you like this or do you like the classic goggles and and tennis skirt? Um, None of them are my favorite. I like bits and pieces of every version of costume she's had. Like her original version, I love the goggles in the top, mm-hmm. I don't like the, the tennis skirt. Then the Suicide Squad version later on, like the black bodysuit kind of thing. Yeah. I like that, but not the goggles. Yeah. And then when you get here, I love the mask and I love some of the uh, sort of the highlights, which are like the, the weird purple or I mean, so, uh, like gold tubing and stuff like that around her. But the rest of it doesn't always work. And then I don't love the final costume she gets in Shadow Pack. So I've always loved her look, but I like different pieces from every era, but none of it all together. Yeah, I, actually, I totally agree. I love her mask and her hair in yes. this mini. Yes. I think it's super cute. I think it's a really good look for her. But yeah, the rest of the costume doesn't work. But she's got such a cool power set. I mean, I, I oh forgot because yeah. you're right. During this mini, they kind of just use her as the teleporter. I mean, mm-hmm. she's just basically the team's car. And then at one point, they, they're like, wait, Eclipse's weakness is light? Detective Chimp is like, oh, I have the answer. Nightshade, just teleport her to the sun. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's great. That's awesome. And she's like, oh, I forgot how powerful I am. That was really smart. <laughs> well, I love, too, that she acknowledges that her powers don't make sense even to her. Because she yeah. says she controls darkness, but darkness isn't a thing. All darkness is, is the absence of light. And so mm-hmm. I like that she acknowledges that her powers don't even make sense, but she's like, well, I just go with it. You know, I like that quite a bit. 
Then we get into Ragman. I, I've already kind of like said everything I could about Ragman. I love the character, but I think I'm, mm-hmm. already, I'm just going to re- end up repeating myself if I say any more. Yeah, me too. Love him. Cool power set. Weird name. Go Jews. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't touch that. <laughs> uh, then Black Alice. All right, so I'll, I'll start us off here. I'm very conflicted on this character because, first of all, I think she's super cool. She originally appeared in, in Birds of Prey, so she mm-hmm. was really well-defined by Gail Simone. Great. I love her powers. I love the idea she absorbs other people's magical abilities. I love the costume redesigns they give her. They're always so creative where they take, like, the Spectre's look but turn it all black but also do weird things where it's really long and her feet, like a cloak drags off her feet and when she steals Shazam's powers. It's really interesting. However, she is a teenage girl. We're talking yeah. 14, 16 years old. I'm not sure. I don't know if they specifically ever say. But there is some really uncomfortable sexualization going on in this character. Yeah. Not just in this book, but also in Birds of Prey because, well, let's face it, she was co-created by Ed Benes. So there you mm-hmm. go. There's your answer right there. Uh, but it, it's really uncomfortable. But it's like if I were to tell myself that character's 25, I'd say this is super cool and she's hot. But mm, I can't say that. Yeah, I, I very uh, maybe less mixed feelings about her. I just don't like her as oh, a okay. character. Yeah, I think she's something of a plot device. Now, look, I love Gail oh. Simone. I love Birds of Prey. In this mini, she's, you know, something of a plot device. Like, oh, she can absorb the Spectre's powers and then we can take him down. Now, they use her better than that. Willingham gives her a, a nice voice and, and shows her, like, oh, she's so out of her league in this moment mm-hmm. that she goes kind of running back home. And that's really cool. But the way she's depicted, she looks like a Hardy brother from, like, WWE. Like, she's like, you know, the black nail polish, the black <laughs> jeans. And, and, and then, yeah, there's some disturbing, like, there's at one point, they show her walking home from school mm-hmm. clutching her books and she's like black jeans and no, and very noticeably they zero in like a, on a thong right yep. oh yeah and, yeah and i was like oh and it, it's it's it reminded me of that moment when i was reading a gen 13 issue as an adult yeah and and j scott campbell has roxy on the cover depicted the way that j scott campbell does and i uh, in, in the issue like literally on the first page she talks about being 16 and i'm like oh no dude like get like no there's why didn't you get that memo like no and so i had that same reaction to her and I could have gotten over it because, you know, because it's comics and that happens at times. I wouldn't have gotten super hung up on it other than as a dad. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not super comfortable with that. But I just also, I that power set, it just reminds me too much of that book, Half Magic. I don't know if you read that when you were in fourth grade. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a really famous book. Uh, and, and this may be the English teacher and me coming out. But it's basically, it's about a, a, a kid who can do half magic, or a group of kids actually, because they have this magic coin. It's Edward Eager. And anything they, they wish for, they get half of, right? So if they want to go back to like you know a hundred years they have to wish to go back 200 years oh, and it's weird. a silly yeah and it's a weird book it's a, it's a staple of like fourth grade and so just kind of her power set reminded me of that so i was not feeling her and i was pretty happy when her power didn't save the day because it felt a little bit like a quick out so yeah i was i was okay with her being put back to birds of prey fair enough then we get into characters like Captain Marvel. He's he's used quite a bit in this, more as a supporting role. Uh, I loved seeing him in it. I loved uh, you know his sort of let's go get him kind of attitude. I, I don't have much else to say, but I, I I was happy to see him, and I'm glad he's whenever he's tied in with the magical community. Can I confess something? Never sure. loved him. Never loved this character. I, I I respect the character. I like the trope, but I was really thinking. I was looking at my your notes for this, and I was like, oh, what's my standout 
Captain Marvel memory or story. And I was like, yeah, probably the movie. <laughs> like, I, like I, I really liked the movie. Zachary Levi doing the flossing. <laughs> yeah, basically, I just, I don't know that I have a, a classic Captain Marvel story in my head. And I mean, maybe like the Jeff Smith, you know, Monster Society of Evil, but that's, that's more for just loving that style of art. But is he a favorite of yours? Do you have like a, if, you know, do you have a, oh my God, you need to read this for no, him? No, no, I, I, I love the character conceptually. There's been very little that I've read that made my heart sing. Like, I do like the Power Shazam stuff from Jerry Ordway. I think that's yeah. very well constructed and enjoyable. But there's not a lot of... And, and also, I would say, I love some of the Bronze Age stuff. When DC was trying to bring Shazam back and, like, he would fight Superman and DC Comics Presents and stuff like that. I yeah. have some nostalgia love for that era. But not not a lot else. E- even in his JLI stuff, he was fun in there, but he wasn't great. So I, I don't have a huge passion for this character. I was dreading the film, but then I don't feel like it's a Captain Marvel movie. Movie, uh, or Shazam, whatever you want to call it, it's a Zachary Levi vehicle, which is fine because Zachary mm-hmm. Levi is damn charming and that's great. But it, it doesn't feel like Captain Marvel to me. So we can move yeah. right on to Doctor Fate and Nebu. Oh yeah, now, now we're getting to somebody I love. I have something very specific to bring up on this one. But what, do, what did you feel like? Because Doctor Fate's not really in the mini mm-hmm. very much. Uh, they just kind of they wipe out uh, Hector Hall basically as Doctor Fate, and then when we come back for the special, he's out of the picture completely, and we're just dealing Nebu. I've gone on Testament many times of my love of Doctor Fate. How, where, where's your position on the character? So I love I love the depiction of Nabu in this miniseries because normally he's this like despotic tyrant who killed Kent Nelson's father and aged Kent Nelson up to from child to man and I mean all the stuff they did in the you know the Keith Giffen and JMD Mateus miniseries from the 80s which I love so I actually had not read the Doctor Fate series until you and Mike talked about it on your show oh wow okay yeah not at all in fact I had not read it and then you guys raved so much about it and I went back and I loved it so I Nabu for me is again either this despotic evil lord of order tyrant or he's you know the lovable old man in the <laughs> J.M.D. Mateus, Dr. Fate book, who's like one of the great, he had Petey the dog, like two of the great characters ever. So I I didn't know which Nabu we were going to get. And early on, it seems, you know, when he first appears, you think, oh, he's the, you know, Lord of Order again, because he flat out says, I'm Nabu, Lord of Order. But he makes the big sacrifice in the book. I mean, in the, in the Infinite Crisis special, the story is wrapped up because he literally sacrifices his whatever his concept of life is, is eons old existence so that the higher power, I mean, basically they don't say it God, but you know, so that whenever, you know, God of the DC universe notices what the specter has been up to, which also begs the question, like what? Like, how did you not, you didn't notice the other stuff, but either way he sacrifices himself and it's the sacrifice play that wins the day. So I thought it was a really cool depiction of him. And I, I was all in on it. What about you? I, I loved it. Um, it. It's sort of interesting for me. I'm, I'm a big, big Dr. Fate fan. I'm looking at my Dr. Fate action figures, which are next to my Blue Devil action figures, by the way. And uh, I've always been a, f- a lover of the Kent Nelson version primarily. Yeah. However, I really felt like uh, this one was fulfilling a promise we had gotten many years earlier, uh, specifically in Books of Magic, all the mm-hmm. way back into what, like 1990, I guess it was, with Timothy Hunter. We saw uh, different phases of Magic's history, and at one point they, they jumped to the future. And you see where the hel- it's just the helmet. There's no yeah. host anymore. And that's the first time I remember ever seeing that. And it was like, whoa, that is super striking. And then it was like, you know, wow, that's cool. And then we saw Kingdom Come. Again, just the helmet. It was sort of a nod back to Books of Magic, really. And so here we saw it happen. And so that was really exciting for me. Like, oh, it's, you know, Destiny Fulfilled. 
sold kind of thing. So it was really nice seeing that and how it played out. And I loved that. And they didn't hang a lantern on it. So I didn't feel like Spectre and Dr. Fate, they're old teammates. They, yeah. just, they were on the JSA. They, they came up together, you know? So it was nice to see them together. It's sad that they're fighting one another. But it's nice to see those two characters that used to be teammates, you know, and it all comes down to that. And so, yeah, and the sacrifice was beautiful. It was perfect. I loved the whole thing. Yeah, it was really well played. And I have to think Dr. Fate might benefit more than any other character in history from great name, great costume, great power set. Mm. Because you can't really pin down his character. I mean, yeah, I like <laughs> Kent Nelson too, but I, I don't know that Kent Nelson is as compelling as Diana Themyscira or, you know, and I liked Eric and Linda, but I don't know if I liked him as much as, you know, Bruce Wayne. So so it's funny. I just think, I always think about because I've loved him too and I've loved him ever since the Superpowers action figure. Yes! When I, I didn't even really know who he was when I got it, but it's like, great helmet, great color scheme, great name. Yes. Like, so I don't know. I think, I think he's just, he's got all those traits working for him really well because then I think that's why so many of us love him. Yeah, because he's not likable. He's an aloof douche, you know. Really yeah. Is what he is. <laughs> and so he's he's not somebody you tend to root for. It's like, wow, giant onk bolts. That's cool. You know, that's where you love the character for the for the look. And I have to say, when I read that issue of All Star Squadron where they he gets the half helmet, mm-hmm. I felt really good because I'm like, oh, it's the Jewish version. <laughs> he circumcised him. It's great. <laughs> so I was really excited about that. He was on. He was an automatic one. He was he was one of my people then. <laughs> On such a roll tonight. Uh. <laughs> oh, lordy lord. All right. Um, this does sort of lead me to one thing that is a bit of a disappointment in this series for me, which is the, the first six issues ends on a very downbeat, right? The Spectre mm-hmm. wins. He's killed the Wizard Shazam. And the part that's bothersome to me is that the Shadow Pack, so, you know, our, our viewpoint heroes, they just watched it on TV, basically. Yeah. You know, Phantom Stranger just said, here, we can watch. So they didn't even get to participate. They didn't feel like they had agency, really, to me. In that ending. So then you go to the special. Same sort of situation. Naboo is the one that saves the day by battling the Spectre. And again, the Shadow Pack just watch. Now, they had agency on the, the Seven Deadly Sins, which was mm-hmm. but I felt like they didn't have any say winning the day. Whereas originally, they almost beat the Spectre twice. You know, they came really close to beating the Spectre twice. And in the end, they didn't get to beat him at all. So I just felt like, uh, I don't know, that was, that was the only disappointing thing to me. I wish they had been more involved in the final defeat. I remember being disappointed by that when I first read it. And then upon reread, I was like, well, okay, you know, they, they do get their moment to shine in the early part of the mini. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, if you're, if you're role playing this, you know, it's only going to be Dr. Fate. There are only so many hero points, right? Like it's only going to be Dr. <laughs> Fate who can take him down. But actually, this does bring me to my secret question, my <gasps> friend, which I oh, did prepare. No. Oh, I came in with a secret question. I did. I'm not all just foreskin jokes, my friend. So <gasps> the... <laughs> so that... Oh, man, the quarantine's messing with my brain. Shag, my secret question for you is, so Day of Vengeance for me at heart is a ragtag group against impossible odds trying to save the day, which is a trope I love. What is your favorite, and it could be movies, books, comics, what's your favorite version of that sort of dirty dozen or that small group who has no business being at the table being the ones who are put in front to save the day? Well, the the first thing that always comes to mind for me, and it doesn't exactly fit that mold, but it's a ragtag, motley crew that really have no chance of survival is Battlestar Galactica. Oh, um, good choice. Specifically the reboot in 2005. Yeah. Uh, now, I love both versions immensely for different reasons, but just the, the whole idea of humanity's last stand is unfortunately these people, and they're very very flawed characters and they have no right to have survived and yet they're still persevering and they're still going and they're not giving up. Now that's a little different 
then the ragtag group of heroes, which comes together, you know, a team every week that comes together to save uh-huh. the day. So it's a little different from that. But uh, if you'll allow it, that's that's the play I'll make is, is BSG. No, I think that's a fantastic choice. Yeah, against impossible odds, this little group that has to survive and, and make it through. I mean, that's amazing. That I, I've talked about this before, but that 33 seconds, I think it's the second or third episode of season one. It's just 33. Yeah, that's what it's called. Oh, 33, yeah. It's, it's, it's the first episode after the miniseries. Yeah. That's right. It, it may be the single best episode of TV of all time. I mean, I just, I would put it up against almost anything else. It's amazing. They, they just did a quarantine uh, table read of it. Oh, did they really? Or maybe it's about to happen. I don't remember the timing of it, but yeah, but they scheduled a, a table oh. read uh, on like Zoom kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's such a good episode. I love that. That's a, that's a fantastic choice. Uh, you know, I mean, and there's some other like Firefly. Oh yeah. Okay. So what did you, what did you pick? So it's funny. You triggered Serenity for me, the, the Firefly movie where they're literally, it's them against the Reavers. But I had actually gone a little bit of a different direction. I went with comics and this may be cheating a little bit because calling this group ragtag maybe doesn't count. But the first six issues of New Teen Titans. So it's the hmm. Baxter series. It's okay. Mark Wolfman, George Perez. And it's the Titans against full scale Trigon the Terrible. Like actual as tall as Titans Tower, three-eyed, horned, crazy, and raven, and, and just them against the entire world is dead. It's a horrorscape, and no one can help them. Superman's done, Aquaman's done, all the big characters are off the board, and it's down to like Kid Flash, who gets hurt every time he uses his power, Nightwing, you know, Changeling, basically no one you would have wanted at the end of the world, and yet they're able to save the world. And and the thing that the reason that issue, that little arc sticks out to me in particular is because Wolfman and Perez, actually I don't think Perez draws it, but Wolfman is smart enough to do a follow-up issue after it. Like the whole world is celebrating them because the whole world knows they saved the world and they actually just go away together because they're all so freaked out by what they just survived. And so I've always loved that. So that that for me, that was what the first thing that came to mind. That's a really good one. I, I did just think of one more. And by the way, also that idea, I mean, they're just sidekicks at that point. You exactly. Know, there's, there's no way the sidekicks are going to save the world from a from a universe beater. But um, the one that just occurred to me that's kind of like a slap the head kind of moment would be Guardians of the Galaxy movie. I know it's the second time oh. we've referenced them in this episode, yeah. but yeah, that's totally the <laughs> characters that sh- should have no hope save the galaxy. But that's the archetype. You're right. We totally missed that. Like that was literally just sitting there for us. <laughs> yeah. So I-, I figured I better beat that before it got in the comments. <laughs> So Spectre and Eclipso as the big antagonist. We've talked quite a bit about both these characters already. I love both for different reasons. I love the darkness within. I have already sort of talked about my bipolar feelings on the Gene Loring version. I, I, I think I'm tapped out on that one. I don't, do you have anything more to add on the characters? Just the Spectre, you know, has always been that sort of universe level character. I mean, think about Crisis on Infinite Earths 11, right? It's him wrestling the anti-monitor on the cover with all the other heroes around him. And so for me, he's a character, like I love the Jim Aparo version. And there's some other places, but you know, for me, he was a character that never really clicked because he was just kind of too all powerful. And then recently in a bin dive, I got the first 12 issues of the John Ostrander, Tom Mandrake Spectre series. So good. Oh my God. I mean, it's Vertigo esque. It is Mm -hmm. as good as anything that was coming out from Vertigo. And so I just want to, I, the only reason I mentioned it is because I just want to recommend it to people. If you didn't read it, if you didn't think it was your, your cup of tea, it is without reservation, one of the great DC books and one of the kind of stealth Greek DC books of that era. So just go out and read it. Well, you know, that was their follow-up to working on Firestorm. They 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 were doing the Elemental Firestorm book That's uh, right. together. And then they went off to do Spectre. So I, I loved it. I just love the continuation of it because it's very different books, but both oh, yeah. were written at a... And when I, I'm going to call it mature storytelling. And I don't mean like what most 
comics are with mature, which just means, you know, like middle school mature, which means mm-hmm. explosions, boobs, and the F word or something like that. But it, it's more mature because they make you think about what's going on in the book and the choices the characters are making. And I really, really like that. That's good stuff. You mentioned Aparo. You do see some more of the Fleischer Aparo type Spectre stuff in the beginning of this miniseries where mm-hmm. he's just taking out vengeance and killing people in horrific ways, which is sort of an echo of the Fleischer Aparo stuff. And then Apar- uh, Eclipso comes to him and basically says, oh, you can do better. Come on. And that's where the story takes off but i do like how they kind of nodded to that in here when in issue one he kills a kid <laughs> for like he steal the kid stole like six dollars from his mom's purse or something it, i mean it, and it's crazy but i could have done with a whole six issue miniseries of him just going around killing random people for really small crimes oh. it would have been great it's been like i would i was i would have been there for that jaywalking die <laughs> <laughs> so uh also i gotta give a nod to the oblivion bar super yeah. fun idea i love this it's it's a trope called the In Between the Worlds. I had to look it up because I, I felt like I'd seen this idea before. There's a lot of these sort of concepts where there's a place where characters come and congregate and you can get there from a number of different places. The Oblivion Bar, for example, has a doorway to get in in almost every city in the world uh, and you just go in and you're in the same bar regardless of what city you entered from. Like Some of my favorite examples are in, in the Captain's Table. I don't know if you read Star Trek books ever, but they did a, mm-hmm. a storyline called The Captain's Table and each book was from a different captain's point of view but they were all in the same bar at the same time. So Kirk is there in the bar, and, and Picard's there in the bar, and Janeway's uh. in the bar. And you now they're not all together, but they're all in different parts of the bar, all at the same time. And they've all come in from different time periods and places. And it's just, it's a neat concept. I, I just got to give a shout out to some of the deep cuts in here. I mean, really, really deep cut magical characters. We, we mentioned, you know, B and C level. Some of these are even below that. Now, some are higher. You get, you get your Jason Bloods, you get your Dead Mans, you know, stuff like that. But then you get uh, like Black Orchid, Doctor mm-hmm. Cult, you get Arion, Lord of Atlantis, you get Manitow Raven from JLA, who's like an afterthought by this point. He's he's out of there. Uh, I Vampire, who hadn't been thought of in years. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Morgan from Warlord, which is pretty cool. The Ghost Patrol. That's That was my favorite. A super deep cut. I love that. You get Valda from Arok, Son of Thunder, who I don't think had been published in 20 years at this point. Mm-hmm. You get Freedom Beast, who was the successor of Buona Beast. You get Witchfire from Power Company, which now it's funny, like at that point, Power Company wasn't really that old. But sitting here, you know, 15 years later, Power Company's like, did that book actually exist? I think it did. <laughs> so that seems like a super deep cut to me. Then Janissary, which mm-hmm. is like way deep cut from Planet DC, those annuals, that's crazy. And Claw the Unconquered and, and just so many more. It was just a feast for the eyes. I loved it. Well, I mean, it was like a, it was like a walking who's who. Yeah. It was really cool. And I love that in the special, the Infinite Crisis special, they actually name all of them. Yeah. You know, they give them their little picture box and they put their name down, which one is a smart way to renew the IPs. But two, I was like, oh, this is really cool. This is like, a, it is. It's like a who's who of the magical world. Like, what color is it in the, what do magical creatures get in the loose leaf version? Do they get a special color? Supernatural. <laughs> purple. <laughs> yeah, which I know Rob loves. It was a ballad to the color purple. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is cool. It is, it's a deep, deep dive. And the, yeah, there were some people in there who, Janissary, I suddenly flash back to the cover because it it's a Justice League annual, right? I think it is. I think so. And I remember that. I was like, oh, that was a terrible, terrible. <laughs> 
terrible <laughs> year for annuals. But I remember that name being so unusual. I didn't even know she was a ma- magic-powered character, but I was like, cool, deep cut. So, yeah, I appreciated that as well. They, they did some research on this book. So I took some screenshots and threw them up, up on Twitter and actually reached out to Bill Willingham and asked him, I said, was this the artist or was this you who had the idea for all these deep-cut characters? And and he didn't seem too sure, but he said he, he said he thought it was him. So, you know, we'll give credit to Bill. That works for me. That works. The last thing, really not a character, but the idea of Shadow Pack. I mean, you even mentioned in your recap. It's a name with some history. I, I love this idea of there's been Shadow Packs throughout history and they're always championing lost causes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I like that. That was a really nice touch. Well, it's really cool because they keep trying to name themselves throughout the miniseries. And Detective Chimp is like, oh, the six losers or they who stood against the specter and did not die horribly. And, you know, just offering <laughs> up these really funny names. And all of a sudden, Nightmaster's like, no, we're the Shadow Pact. And Detective Chippy goes, wait, what? Where'd you come up with that? He's like, I don't know. It just popped in my brain. And then later on, Phantom Stranger, Nabu, everybody's like, oh, them again? Like, yeah. that group always fails. They always fail. So even that's really cool. It's like, it is, I mean, it really reminds me of the losers, you know, from DC's war books, where like, even their name tells you, oh, historically, not a good idea to bet on these guys. <laughs> when the, the Shadow Pack name is really cool, right? Because it's one more step in the evolution of this sort of gap gathering of magicians that we see in the DC universe. And as I was looking at these issues and I was kind of prepping for it, I started really flashing back to some big moments and I was really racking my brains. Like, well, when was the first time we got all these supernatural characters in one room? And I flashed back to two moments from Crisis. One is Crisis on Infinite Earths 11 and 12. All of the sorcerers gather at Fate's Tower. And I don't know if you remember, it's a really great image by Perez and Ordway where they're circling mm-hmm. Alan Scott's Green Lantern and they're channeling their, their supernatural power into the Spectre and then, you know, to, to hold off the Anti-Monitor. And then Swamp Thing 50, which is the culmination of the American Gothic storyline. All of the sorcerers gather in Baron Winter's mansion from Night Force, of all places. Right. And that's where Zatara dies, Zatanna's father. Mm-hmm. He, you know, literally is immolated while they're fighting this magical battle. And then I went to, you had mentioned Books of Magic, where the Trenchcoat Brigade gathers. I'll stop you. There's one more in between there. Oh, okay. Blue Devil Summer Fun Annual. Oh, that's right. There's a, there's a gathering of all these different magical characters. You get uh, Black Orchid and Etrigan and Phantom Stranger and Blue Devil and um, I'm forgetting somebody. But it was just a lot of different magical characters together. And it was uh, it was it was done in a fun nature. But it was mm-hmm. another one of those examples where DC's they're clearly trying to get something going. In fact, in that issue, they joke about making a team. And so uh, DC's definitely you can see it's sort of like DC's trying to make it happen throughout the years. Well, it's kind of cool. It's almost like Shadow Pact, right? It's almost like that idea of this group pops up every once in a while and almost gets there and doesn't like you know there's the sentinels of magic from judgment day and then this shadow pack comes in but this has a huge legacy and i i don't think people always realize this so day of vengeance happens and then the shadow pack series launches and it's all these same characters and then in new 52 dc does release a justice league dark book mm-hmm. and i it's funny because i bought the first few issues of it because they're illustrated by Mikel janine who mm-hmm. is just my favorite modern artist i mean he's most famous now for his work with tom king on batman and on grayson with tim seeley but i, I had not heard of him and then justice league dark comes out I'm like oh this is the best looking book on the stands this is amazing and so i bought you know quite a few issues of that but that first iteration that New 52 iteration doesn't follow this step. It's a very different book. But they relaunch it recently with James Tynan writing it. And it is absolutely a sequel to this because there's a storyline where they go to Nightmaster, they go to the Oblivion Bar, oh. and Nightmaster, they go to his realm where he's the defender of it. And he actually sacrifices himself at one point, and Detective Chimp gets the sword and becomes Nightmaster for a moment, which is <laughs> the funniest thing ever. Blue Devil's there, and he's 
helping them fight. You've got all of these characters featuring in this same setting. They are housed out of the Oblivion Bar. And the opening salvo, in fact, this is actually still the dominant storyline, is them versus these creatures from the other side, basically, who were the originators of wild magic back in the day, which is a huge theme through Day of Vengeance, Mm -hmm. right? This idea of wild magic being released. And they're trying to get back to these days before magic was controlled. And Justice League Dark is trying to stop them. I mean, it is unapologetically a sequel to this. And, and tying in Detective Chimp is a, is a major character in it. He's one of Justice. He's a member of Justice League Dark. And Tynan is just channeling this book because it's the same wow. funny, smart, but curmudgeonly character that you kind of grow to love. So I think it's really cool. I think that legacy is really cool. Did they treat Blue Devil properly in that? Because the solicitation didn't suggest to me they were going to. But did they ultimately? He is a badass in it. He is a real warrior in it. And in fact, I think he would love... <laughs> Remember in the 80s or the early 90s when you were downloading something and you got to 99% and the bar was buffering and you knew something was wrong? Yeah. This, that's kind of how you would probably feel about the way Blue Devils treated. The 99% of it is brilliant. And then there's a moment, something happens to him that's maybe not as great, but they do uh-huh. circle back to... No, no, but they circle back to it in a really good way. So okay. I do recommend it. It's a it's a brilliant book. In fact, honestly, I think it's been the best book on the stands for DC for two years. I don't think anything mm. even comes close to it. It's a great Zatanna book. It's a great Wonder Woman book. She's one of the main characters in it. So I, yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. And, and again, a very cool through line back to this miniseries, back to Swamp Thing, back to Crisis, you know, books of magic. And it's just, yeah, DC has this great legacy of every, you know, five to 10 years remembering, hey, we've got these really cool magic heroes. And now that there's no more Vertigo, which I lament, but I like that those magic characters are part of the DCU. We get a little bit more of that in the, in our main character, in our main hero universe. I'm down with that. I will definitely check that out. I, I, I'm interested now that you've told me that about the detective chimp and, and its legacy to this book. That that's actually very interesting to me. It is also the scariest book I've ever read in a main oh, in a mainstream okay. in a mainstream comic book universe. It reminds me a lot of Alan Moore's early Swamp Thing run, where there are genuinely terrifying moments in this book. Oh my gosh! Well, thanks for that nightmare fuel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good, though. So, in speaking of legacy, and I'll just keep this quick, but I do want to point out, so there were four main minis leading into Infinite Crisis, mm-hmm. and all of them sort of echo into today. So, I talked about Day of Vengeance going into Justice League Dark. Mm-hmm. If you look at OMAC, the OMAC series leads into Greg Rucka's brilliant Checkmate book with okay. Jesus Saez on art, and Event Leviathan by Brian Michael Bendis today is a direct, direct sequel to that Checkmate book. In oh. fact... There is a Checkmate book coming in the next few months-ish, depending on the world, that is going to... And Bendis has said it's basically going to be based on the Rucka book. The Ron Thanagar War happens. It's, you know, Hawkman versus... And Hawkwoman versus Adam Strange. Well, Adam Strange has his own book right now. Hawkman has his own book right now, which is really cool. And then Villains United turns into Secret Six, Mm -hmm. which is completely what the Suicide Squad reboot is based on. I will tell you, I love John Ostrander's Suicide Squad. I've not been a fan of the sort of Harley Quinn King Shark version. You know, and, and the movie was fun. It had its moments. I mean, no. it was, don't, if you don't take it too seriously, it's no. okay. But no. I know it could have been better. But uh, Tom Taylor 
is doing a Suicide Squad, Squad book right now. It's about four issues in. And oh my God, it's so good. It's the best thing I've read since Ostrander. So if you've been estranged from Suicide Squad the way I have been, you got to check out the new run. So anyway, there's just a lot of legacy. A lot of these books have resonated out in a way that I don't think anybody expected, which is, I think, really cool. Well, you know, Bailey talked about how the, the lead up to Infinite Crisis was the last time he felt truly invested in the DC Universe. Like by the end of Infinite Crisis itself, he was starting to feel a separation from the universe itself. Now, he still buys a lot of DC comics, or at least he did in, in, over the years, but truly loving the universe kind of ended mm-hmm. uh, after this. And I'm not that different. I mean, in a lot of ways, when I think about it, I, I feel kind of the same way. I was all in leading up to Infinite Crisis. And then after that's when I started to feel some, you know, some issues. And then by the time you get to New 52, I've never felt connected to the DC universe since. So leaning on the stuff that still has a lot of love, like this mm-hmm. pre-Infinite Crisis stuff, I, it makes sense. DC's always sort of looked for, okay, what can we bring back that has the nostalgia value that people love that are willing to try again? And so it makes sense they'd lean on these four series because they were very popular. Yeah, it makes total sense. And also, I think we're getting a generation of creators who this was the last time they felt charged by DC as well. Mm. So they're trying they're trying to bring some of that back. So I, I think it's very present in the modern day DCU, or or at least in where it seems to be going. That makes a lot of sense. Well, since we're talking about other types of books, I'll, I'll, I'll trip hammer through a couple things real quickly because it ties into Day of Vengeance. There was uh, a, a series of books, uh, a story arc, that preceded Day of Vengeance, which actually led right into it directly. It featured Superman and Captain Marvel, your favorite. It was called <laughs> Lightning Strike. Twice and it went through Adventure Com. I'm sorry, Adventure Superman, Action Comics, and Superman. One month, it was all by the same creative team, and it was actually recently covered by Michael Bailey and uh, Dave Weeder over on It All Comes Back to Superman. You should check that out. It's it's a really good episode. It was written by Judd Winnick with art by Ian Churchill. Now the plot essentially is that the entity of Eclipso takes possession of Superman, but its real intended target is Captain Marvel, and this results in a big throwdown between the last Kryptonian and the mightiest mortal. And it's relevant to Days of Vengeance because in it, Eclipso does battle Captain Marvel, kind of similar to what we. We've seen this to some extent. Mm-hmm. And Eclipso ends the series in possession of Gene Loring. Now, it, it's not the same transition. We see it in more in full here in Day of Vengeance, but it, it leads you into that. The Wizard Shazam also gets involved uh, battling Eclipso, and Wizard Shazam actually calls upon Spectre for help. Ooh. And Spectre is a friend there, not an enemy. So it's sort of interesting that Shazam and Spectre are there working together in this story that immediately precedes it. And it, it also provides an interesting detail that I feel like really would have worked well in Day of Vengeance. I wish they'd included it, which was that they talk about that Eclipso and Spectre are both spirits of vengeance, but Eclipso went rogue, and so the Spectre was sort of a reaction to that, and he was was created to replace Eclipso. And Eclipso approaches vengeance from retribution and rage, whereas the Spectre approaches vengeance from the comprehension of compassion. (laughs) He he does? (laughs) That was my first reaction, too. Yeah. It's it's a bit of more like comprehension of compassion, which then leads to revenge, I think. Yeah. But anyway... (laughs) They claim that those are their words, I'm claiming, Judd Winnick's words to be specific. Anyway, it says there's a balance between these two entities. Now, for me, um, I, I read the three issues when they came out, and I reread them just before we recorded this. I don't love this three-issue story arc. It's fine. It, it's a fun little, uh, it's a quick read. It, it feels pretty much to me like, though, like it was one of those Eclipse of Darkness Within annuals that was published 10 years 
before this. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Ian Churchill's artwork, I know there's a lot of people that love it, but for me, it looks like something I would have loved in 1992. Yep. Today, not so much. So that it, it, that's just me. Again, I, I don't feel like I'm giving it a fair shake. I, I do think that it, it has a lot of touch points for Day of Vengeance. I don't think it's necessary, but it might be a fun read for someone who wants more because it does give you, you know, more Eclipso, more Captain Marvel, more Shazam, more Spectre. Have you read it before? I have, yeah. And, and actually, I had honestly forgotten about it until you put it in the notes. I do remember Ian Churchill's art. I'm also not a fan. And again, you know, to each their own. Yep. But it, it wasn't something that resonated with me very heavily. I had actually forgotten how directly related it was. So, me too. so I, I think I am going to dip back and reread it again just because I'm a completist moron. But I don't remember <laughs> loving it. <laughs> now, to be fair, I definitely recommend you guys listen to It All Comes Back to Superman. Yes. Again, Michael Bailey and Dave Weider, they, they actually have a lot of fun with it. They find a lot of stuff to love in it. And you know what? You should give it a chance. Listen to what they have to say. Hear their point of view. And um, if you follow their pursuit, it's uh, there's a lot to love. Now, there were other stuff going on after Day of Vengeance started that tie in with this book, because of course they're going to tie in. They want to sell more comics. So they had JSA tie in directly with Day of Vengeance, specifically issues 73 through 75 and 77, written by Jeff Johns. The gist of that is, a couple years prior to this, there had been a JSA story where the Black Adam manipulated Eclipso. Now, it was a different incarnation of Eclipso, but either way, it's the same Black Diamond. So, And in this story, the Jean Loring Eclipso, she wants her revenge on Black Adam for what he did. So there's big fighty fight with Spectre as he trashes Black Adam's country. And Eclipso messes with Black Adam quite a bit. And the Spectre takes out the magical members of the JSA at that point, takes out Dr. Fate, which explains why Dr. Fate wasn't a major player in Day of Vengeance. Uh, now, obviously Naboo is, but not Dr. Mm-hmm. Fate, which at that point was... Um, Hector Hall. Uh, thank you. Uh, Hector Hall, exactly. And uh, Sp- uh, Spectre also takes out Jakeem Thunder and his lightning bolt. So, now for me, I don't feel like it's critical to read this for Day of Vengeance. However, with that said, JSA is just a great read. I mean, yep. really is phenomenal. I love that JSA book by John and it all ties together very nicely so it's not necessary but you know it, it basically it fills out the tapestry more if you want to dive into it now I'm going to guess because you're a, a relatively smart human being you've read JSA I hope yeah in fact I would argue it is the best book of the early part of the millennium wow, I, okay. I think it's yeah it's on par there with maybe Ultimate Spider-Man for me it's definitely my favorite DC book of that era it's, it's just amazing yeah it's, it's it's absolutely exceptional it's it's certainly the most entertaining team book without a doubt oh yeah, yeah. another tie-in was Blood of the Demon, issue 6 and 7, which I did not read at the time, but I did read in preparation for this episode, written by John Byrne and Will Pfeiffer. So I was like, oh, okay, pretty decent pedigree there. Yeah, not so much. Uh, story, uh, Spectre and Gene Loring Eclipso, they, they remove the demon Etrigan from Jason Blood's body. And Jason's body rapidly ages while Etrigan's uh, like imprisoned. And in the end, thanks to some you know kooky magic spells and all that, they get everything back to normal where Jason's body's hosting the demon Etrigan. So really, it, it's not critical at all for Day of Vengeance. In fact, it feels more like a, like a field trip for Spectre and Eclipso. And, um, I, I, I kind of feel like I wasted my time. I don't know. Have you read these? No, I tended to view anything in the early 2000s by John Byrne as a, this is why I hate what you love. And so <laughs> I definitely did not purchase these issues. Even though I like Will Pfeiffer, actually, I did not buy these issues. But yeah, it sounds like Eclipso Inspector's Summer Vacation. So I think I'm okay without them. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. All right. So at the end here, you know, the whole point of Day of Vengeance and all the other miniseries was to lead you to Infinite Crisis. That's the end point. At the end of issue number six of Day of Vengeance, it says, to be continued in Infinite Crisis number one. So how does it connect with Infinite Crisis is your question. Before Day of Vengeance came out, you got Countdown to Infinite Crisis, which was released one month before Day of Vengeance. And 
in there, you get just little nods. You get like a little glimpse of Spectre. You got a little mm-hmm. glimpse of Captain Marvel, and you a little glimpse of Gene Loring as Eclipso. You see the Wizard of Shazam and the Scare from Blue Beetle, but that's really it. There's not much in Countdown there. Then after Day of Vengeance number six is over, you get an Infinite Crisis, which was le- released one month after Day of Vengeance number six. So I'll, I'll put the question to you: Does Day of Vengeance really matter to the plot of Infinite Crisis? No, no, not, I mean not really, not at all. Now it matters in that the four minis put together that lead up to Infinite Crisis are Alexander Luther and Superboy Prime trying to tilt the DC universe so far that they could take the actions they want to take and, and sort of get the main Superman to see that this is a corrupt world and we need to make these big changes. And so I guess in that bigger trope, that part kind of works. But no, we get to see the Spectre sort of stomping through Gotham like he's making wine a couple <laughs> times in Infinite Crisis. I mean, I, I remember the Fisherman or that Aquaman villain being in there for some reason. Okay. Yeah, he's in there because it's the first time I'd ever heard of him. And I was like, who is that guy? Uh, but other than that, no, there's really not much of a connection. And so it, it felt strained. It felt like definitely unlike OMAC, you know, where that was just completely connected or even the, you know, Villains United, Secret Six, you know, that leads into Lex Luthor versus Alexander Luthor and all of that nonsense. You no, know, I don't think this really connected. Am I, you know, and I reread this, you know, for this. I mean, am I misremembering? Do you think it, it's a it's a tight continuity? <laughs> no, not at all. You're dead on. In fact, I reread Infinite Crisis for this yeah, me too. well. And for me, it's, there are connections but they're there because they need to be. What I feel like instead, I always make this analogy, it's a little bit like Star Trek Generations. I, I feel like, and, and people can argue with me, whatever, the, in the writer's room for the movie Star Trek Generations, they sat down, instead of sitting down with a plot, they sat down with a checklist of things they wanted to see happen in the yeah. movie. We want Data to get his emotions. We want to destroy the Enterprise. You know, that kind of thing. And in this, I feel like they sat down with a checklist. We want to kill the wizard Shazam because we need that for the new series Trials of Shazam. We want the Blue Beetle Scarab to appear so that we can put it in the Blue Beetle comic with uh, Jaime Reyes. We want to make Spectre bat crap crazy without a, and, and need a new host so that we can have the infinite crisis aftermath with the Spectre. We need to smash Atlantis so that we have mm-hmm. uh, you know Aquaman sort of Atlantis. And we need to set up you know a magical super team. So Shadow Pack. So I feel like all of this could have been done in just throwaway panels in Infinite Crisis. It didn't require the Day of Vengeance miniseries. Which may be why the Day of Vengeance miniseries works so well for us. Because yeah. it's, it's not dependent on Infinite Crisis, and Infinite Crisis is not dependent on it. It's almost an independent entity that exists entirely on its own, and that may be why we like it so much, actually. Yeah, you're right. It could have been its own little mini-event. There, there was no need for it to carry the Infinite Crisis banner at all. And I think you're right, too, that it gives, it's a really good point, it gives Willingham freedom to, like, well, I'm not super beholden, you know, to what's coming, where some, something like the, the OMAC miniseries is so incumbent on that moment where Wonder Woman snaps Maxwell Lord's neck, which doesn't even happen in the miniseries that it's it's a bit jumbled even though in my opinion it has more, you know probably the best creative team I love Greg Rucka I love uh, I think it's Jesus Saiz on art and so because it's less beholden I think there is more freedom to just tell a really good story with some characters where the stakes can feel high because there's no need for any of them to walk out of it alive you know right. I mean it really isn't there's no there's no character in here you're like oh well that person's getting out alive I think it does give a bit more freedom and and definitely it's my favorite of the lead in minis and I remember it better than I remember 
over a lot of Infinite Crisis, so it did its job. I, I think overall, it's a, it's a huge win. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun to go back and revisit this and to have that initial emotional reaction of like, oh, I remember really liking that and going back and seeing why I really liked it and really analyzing like, oh, no, this is a really well-constructed miniseries and it's a really well-constructed version of the, you know, seven against the world kind of, of you know, mythological trope, which is great. You hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it is. It's it's the team that you want to root for, the underdogs, and he pulls it all together very well. We, we've already sung all the praises of the art and the pacing and the plotting and all of it, and it all just comes together for an incredibly satisfying read. And I love the characters. And when we're done here, I'm going to go read some Shadowback. <laughs> yeah, I, I already, I'm, I'm five issues in, man. I was already, I was like, oh, I can't stop. I need more of these characters. That's pretty great. <laughs> well, awesome, dude. This has been an absolute blast. I am always up for another reason to explore some Blue Devil, uh, which is what initially led me to this. It was like, you know, when Michael Bailey put the offer out for Infinite Crisis, I'm like, okay, I'll take Day of Vengeance because I want to talk about Blue Devil. But it's been <laughs> so much fun to talk about the whole package and so much more than just Blue Devil. So uh, it's been fun. And thank you for joining me on this journey. Thanks for having me, man. This was great. I loved being a part of this. One of my favorite things about podcasts, and probably number one, is getting to meet people and making friends across the world. And you and the Fire and Water Network and others have done such a great job of building this community of comic book podcasters. And that's fantastic. But the other piece I really love about it is I don't know when I would have ever gone back to this. Mm. You know, I'm I'm looking at my long boxes and I don't know that I was going to be digging for this anytime soon. And so to get the experience of of having a reason to go back and reread it and really rediscover something that I loved was just awesome. So this was a lot of fun and I really appreciate getting to be a part of it. Well, we got lucky. We really did. Because a lot of times when you do a podcast, you were forced to think about a story a whole heck of a lot more than you have any right to. And you really, really focus and study on it. And that's where you start to realize where all the cracks are. Like if you were to, I don't know, reread something like Secret Wars 2. Yeah, realize, yeah. Wait a minute. It's not the greatest piece of Western literature. You start to see the cracks. So whereas here, we dug in deep and it just kept getting better. So yep. I, I, I think we were super lucky. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was the opposite of experience of Secret Wars 2. It, Secret Wars 2 is all crack, actually. And to cover it, you had it, you needed crack. So that was a good, that was a perfect word for covering Secret Wars 2. Crack was the word of the day. Now, this, this was a complete story that had great characters and was just nothing but enjoyable. Well, you and Gregor Rujo were absolutely the spackle over those cracks which made Secret Wars 2 enjoyable to hear about. So why don't you tell the people at home where they can find you on the interwebs? Awesome. Well, I'm on Twitter at Sean42AZ and you can find my shows on the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network. Uh, I host, I co-host Secret Wars and Beyond with Dr. G. We cover every issue of every Marvel superhero Secret Wars miniseries. Dr. G and I covered the beautiful gem that is Volume 1 that everybody loves because they read it when they were 10. Gregor Rujo and I covered Volume 2 and while the miniseries was bad, the shows are fun mm-hmm. because we really did work overtime to find the, the beauty and, and goodness inside them. And then actually, Dr. G and I are now covering Volume 3 by Jonathan Hickman and Isad Ribic, which is my favorite Marvel event ever. So I'm super excited that we've arrived at that place. I just want to give you some real props here because, you know, I, Secret Wars 1 and 2, I know pretty well. Secret Wars 3, I've never read. And yet, I'm listening to you and Dr. G's coverage, and I'm finding it absolutely fascinating. And it's actually encouraging me because I've been meaning to read Secret Wars 3 for a long time, but it's encouraging me to say, all right, you know what, this is this has got to get moved up in the reading order. I got to get this done sooner. And it's also sort of helping me with my fear of looking at the, the size and scope of Secret Wars 3 going, oh my gosh, I can't do this. It's too much. But you're giving the roadmap to make it work. And so I appreciate that and, and just loving the show. And again, usually I don't really get deeply into a show where I haven't read the comic, but man, I'm I'm invested and I'm looking forward to more episodes. So you guys are doing a great job. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much. And, and that is actually one of the things we wanted because it is a daunting task to get into Secret Wars 3. And, you know, there's a lot of, of, 
actually, honestly, it's Marvel's Infinite Crisis because there's the lead up. <laughs> it really is. The lead up to it is really substantial. But in many ways, the lead up is the best part. The The new Avengers run that leads up to Secret Wars 3 is some of the greatest comic book work I've ever read from Marvel. So I'm. I, it's funny that we're at Infinite Crisis because it really is. A, they, the analogy works really well. So, yeah, that's great, man. Thank you so much. So, yeah, we have Secret Wars and Beyond. We have a What If cast. And, you know, we, we tend to dip into the Marvel universe quite a bit because there's this other network that's got DC locked down and is doing a great job with it. And so... Oh, you're so full of it. We're just going to leave it to those guys. Because, again, the third thing I love about podcasting is when I have an idea for a show and somebody beats me to it and does it better. And I'm like, oh, cool. I get to just listen. So that's a lot of fun, too. (laughs) I do love that aspect. Every once in a while, I'll just throw an idea out there just to let someone else do it. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. I can just sit back and enjoy. Well, folks, JL May doesn't end here. It's going to continue through a whole bunch of podcasts. So when you're done here, go out and check out these following shows. And don't forget, again, use the hashtag JLMay2020 out there on the interwebs. We want to hear your thoughts. So go check out Views from the Lawn Box, which, by the way, I'm on that episode of JL May. And then Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake, which is one of my favorite shows. Do check it out. Then Pop Culture Affidavit. It All Comes Back to Superman. The Fan Holes Podcast. Justice's First Dawn. Birds of Prey Podcast. Married with Comics. Coffee and Comics Podcast. Longbox Crusade. Task Force X Podcast. Relatively Geeky Presents. Hey, I'm on that one too. Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace. Dr. DC Podcast. And on our very own Firewater Podcast Network, you can check out Aquaman and Firestorm, the Firewater Podcast, where Rob and I go through some Firestorm and Aquaman issues tied into Infinite Crisis. Now, we just rattled off a whole bunch of podcasts. You don't have to listen to all of them. It's not like Infinite Crisis, where you got to read every single piece to understand the whole thing. But it is more like the lead-up to Infinite Crisis, where you, if you listen to all of it, you get the full tapestry. Or you can just dip in and listen to what you want. So, check out JL May. Thanks so much for being here, folks. Now, you have a reputation for coming up with these fantastic sign-offs over on The Secret Wars show. So I'm going to let you do the honors here, Sean. Why don't you sign us out of the show? So I racked my brains during the entire show, and I think my first suggestion was grab your green cape, grab your green underwear, and get to your vengeance. And you've kind of poo-pooed that one. <laughs> so I thought, and I thought, oh, there's an obvious one. Vengeance is a dish best served by Nabu while you watch it on TV. So there you go. There's the sign-off. Boom. <laughs> Mic drop. Thanks, everybody. Take care. You ready, sweetheart? I don't know, Bogey. I don't know if I can do it. Hey, kid, there's nothing to it. Besides, we'll be right here with you. All you gotta do is get into the swing of things, sweetheart. When you wanna sing a song, but the song don't wanna sing. Ah, listen to me, kid, it's a relatively simple thing. You just drum on your guitar, and when you want that song to start, well, all you gotta do is get into the swing of things, sweetheart. <laughs>